0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians and others. Uh, We are 177 in class with Carr. I don't know what's going to happen next week, because Dr. Carr is going to be in Kemet. Hi, good morning, sir. Hello.
1: Good everything, good everything. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll... We'll go at some point uh, we might have to pre record something over there or hopefully we can stream live depends. It's a seven hour time difference Okay. and uh, any of you all know about VPNs or any of that business. Let us know because I've been doing my research and talking to folk. We should be okay, but We'll see. We'll, we'll we'll just say less at this point and see what yeah.
0: happens. <laughs> so what what is it like? Three o'clock in the afternoon there now. I, mm-hmm. My math is bad, but yeah, yeah. And the heat
1: yeah. is and the heat is impressive, but it's dry heat. It's not like the heat here. Okay. Uh, the only question will be whether we will be out. Like okay. we'll, we'll start in Cairo. So the things that everybody thinks of when we think of Egypt or Kemet, the pyramids, the tomb, we'll be there early, and then we go south um and luxor and aswan luxor is often called the largest outdoor museum in the world wow. uh, europeans always gotta label something yeah i guess it's a tourist thing but it's where the, many of the temples are and that's where the valley of the kings and queens are so you think of Tutankhamun, king tut so to speak has to all that and then aswan of course is near the sudan border Um, uh, we'll be going a little bit closer to sudan who we'll go to abu simbel where is ramesses ii and nefertari's uh temples are but Aswan is where the Nubians are. So the Nubians with the K will meet the Nubians with the N. And if everybody keeps their mouth shut, nobody will be able to tell the difference that okay. they are the black people. And so we'll be down there. So hopefully we'll be able to share that in real time with the folks. <laughs> so what's the
0: What was the what was the first time you went to Kemet and what was your experience and why?
1: Oh wow, that's a great question. It was 1996, summer of 96. Um we went with the uh myself uh at the Beatty at the Watkins this is before we got our PhDs. We were um, part of the uh, the group, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, ASCAC. We went uh, for our conference. We had the conference in Ghana, and then we went to Egypt, to Kemet. And of course, that's back when so many of the people who we are now experiencing ancestrally through through the work we're doing here, were still around physically. Jacob Carruthers, Asa Hilliard, Zingarada, Bisha Heru, you name it. And um, in fact, uh, Mama Adelaide, I want to say Sanford was on that trip. Wow. Um, yeah. Queen mother, queen mother. Queen Mother. Queen Mother. No question. Queen Mother. And so so many others. So we we pro- we went with probably maybe a, couple, well, maybe a couple of hundred between Ghana and then Egypt. There was a group that went to Kemet first and then came to the conference in July in Ghana. And then we went to Ghana first. And then when we finished the conference, we went to the Nile Valley. So all of those folk, um, uh, the Thomas family from Los Angeles, I remember them specifically because uh, their two little girls. I had my grammar with me, my uh, gardener, Egyptian grammar. So I was uh, teaching them some in basic meta nature as we were out there and one is now a neurosurgeon and the other is a linguist, professor uh, of linguistics, <laughs> who has spent all kind of time Easy, But they were children at test I mean, this is how it works.
0: Well, so were you. You're in your 20s, your late 20s, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, I, and I was just thinking about, you know, I just had this thing, this epiphany, like to, to mature into adulthood mm-hmm. uh, is a, a wonderful thing, you know. And you look back at your 20-something-year-old self and you realize how much you didn't know and how you had, like, I went to Paris at 16. What? Yeah, you know, it was a school trip, you know. So we went to Spain, went to Madrid wow. went to But I'm like I ain't appreciate it. Dr. Carr I ain't appreciate nothing. I was like 16. It should be wasted on young people who can't even, you know, assess value, you know, just like treat it like any other place. But I was wondering if 20 something year old Dr. Carr or pre-Dr. Carr mm. going then, you know, was this your first time on the continent? And oh, was there some sort of like awakening or, or you just took it like, uh, as a student with your notepad and pen? And-
1: oh no, no, it was absolutely, I had made a vow that I was not going to touch any ocean until I touched it from the right side because, um, wow and so when we got to, Wait, it
0: was. so you had never been to a beach before you went to Africa?
1: Mm, let me think. Yeah, I don't recall because I couldn't swim, but that wasn't even the point for me. I'm thinking specifically about the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, I didn't buy in then and I don't buy in now into this myth of American exceptionalism or the the, the concept of an American nation. This is a criminal enterprise. And so if I was going to touch the Atlantic Ocean, it was going to be from the side I got taken from, not the side I got taken to. Hold
0: on, Dr. Carr, what 20 something year old? And so that that says something like profound about you, right? Because like, who's thinking, I'm not touching this water. (laughs) I touch it from the place that I got taken. I was, that was
1: 96. So I was 31 by then. Remember, I had, had, uh, growing up in Tennessee, I hadn't been to the Atlantic. And then going to law school in Ohio, I hadn't had any occasion. I was in New York for sure. And I think New York, probably the first time I went to anywhere near a beach, because, you know, I went all over the
0: region. And, you know and- I'm, the- I'm just, the way I'm you know, I grew up in Jersey. So. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Uh, my dad, I, I think I was like four. We went to Cheesequake Park, and I remember him swimming in the ocean, you know, with with a g- bunch of guys. They were racing or something. And I remember going, wow, my, my daddy could swim. You know, it's like it was crazy <laughs> watching him. You know, in the water, like the beach is something we do in Jersey. You know, it's like that there are whole swaths of Americans that don't go to the beach and and it's summertime and hot as hell right now or everywhere. It's like it's the epiphany for me right now because you know, we we live in our own little silos and we think everybody's experiences is our experience, which is why it's great to be in community with folk from different places, different walks, and bang up against them so that we can see. Things differently—that is wild. But continue. I'm just yeah, like, um, no, no, yeah. no,
1: no. It's true. And, and I would probably—wouldn't you think? Maybe the vast majority of folks who live in the United States will be closer to the experience we had than the one you y'all had.
0: Yeah, because I could have. I could I, I was like, everybody goes to the beach, right?
1: No, I think I think that's probably. Uh, you not know, have to think about it. Um, maybe one of the origins of water rides at amusement parks. People don't pay unless you're near a lake, or I mean, obviously there are a lot of lake bodies of water, but the ocean, and certainly for people like in Chicago, they think Lake Michigan is the ocean, which is so so big. I mean, so they go to the ocean, ocean, right? So no, no, no. I mean, so no, it's, it's not a long story. I, uh, we went, um, the day we went to Elmina, the mine, one of the dungeons, and there on the ocean, that's right. the day I went out in the ocean. And, and say, okay, now my feet can touch this water. Why? Because we got taken. If not from here, if not from Gore, if not from place in Angola or somewhere, it doesn't really matter where. This decided the water we came from, and that wasn't something I had in mind as a child. I mean that that was a virtue. That was a virtue of having gone to an HBCU with solid historians and, and memory keepers, Lois McDougall, and so many others. Uh, Ussif, Baba Ussif, and his bookstore, our Cable Line Books. That was, you know, the African Center for Study and Worship in, in Columbus, Ohio, Mariba Kelsey. By then, it was a wrap. I wasn't going nowhere near the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, a very big part of this is memory. Like what we're talking about in Florida, this whole question, there's a fundamental lack of articulation of what we mean when we use language that stems from the assumptions we make about each other. So when people say personal benefit, for example, people are reading that lens. They're reading that through a cultural lens that hadn't been articulated when i think personal benefit i think liberation oh yeah i'm gonna use this skill to cut your throat your whole head is coming off and not just for me but for everybody who got enslaved here so i don't have no problem with that light but i understand we don't have a shared understanding so i'm not gonna stand in the atlantic ocean on the wrong side why this is indigenous people land over here every time we get in this water in my mind it's reinforcing something it may not be conscious but the whole idea, you know, and, if I'm, you know, and so it was, it was an important ritual. Yeah. So that yeah, was something. And then of course we spent, in fact, there's one of the that jumps out at me and this shout out to the flag family in LA who I saw when I was out there a couple of weeks ago, their son, Christian was 90 on that trip. Now he was their baby girl. Both of them now got children uh, and it's crazy, but there were a bunch of young people from Crenshaw high school who went with us. And myself, uh, Mario, Valetia, Troy Allen, who's now ancestor, we were responsible for while the conference was going on. um, And, you know, we participated in the, the bigger conference. In fact, John Clark was at that time, couldn't make the trip. He was too ill to come. So he gave Anderson Thompson the paper he was going to read and Thompson with instructions to give it to me. So I read John Henry Clark's paper. Um, in the well of the Ghanaian Senate at the ASCAP conference. In fact, there's a video of it floating around somewhere out there on social media. That's was about 110 pounds at the time, which is hilarious to me. But I, yeah, so John Clark, the last talk that he gave while he was alive in Africa, he didn't give it, I did, for him. But at any rate, um, we then had a two-day conference with the teenagers, the kids from Crenshaw High School. There were about maybe 15, 20 of them, and 15 or 20 students from Accra and other places in Ghana. They're in the Ghanaian Senate. We had taken over part of the Ghanaian Senate for the conference. So we had this big conference room and we started the conversation at the opening of the conference. So all all the students from Crenshaw stood up and they had on their African clothes. They were so happy they had gotten stuff before they left the uh, uh, United States. And and then all the Ghanaian students stood, stood up. These young women and men had on suits and ties and dresses. And as they said, I said now everybody stop. This is during at the beginning of the concert. Do y'all see how y'all got dressed? That is very African. What do we mean? Forget the dress. Professor Hunter, why did they why did they show up in what they considered to be their best clothes?
0: Because they wanted to show respect and deference to the their the people that they were greeting and meeting.
1: Exactly. What so I- all you people saying, Oh, you're a little hotel, yeah, that, that coffee ain't for information. Hey, 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 hey. Shh. Culture is protocol, as Angie Porter teaches. Culture is what that is exactly right. It was very African. We want to show our affection for you, our respect for you. And so, but they did it in the inverse. So, all these people arguing about African clothes and African names. No, no, no. Being African is more than a name, more than some cloth. More than, It's the product, it's the culture. Personal benefit. Yeah, no, not personal benefit. It's about individuals. It's about individuals in community with others That's why I can't read the curriculum right unless you got a different framework. So that's exactly right And then I, this is the last part of that. So we had two days of incredible conversation There was a moment where we were talking about value and what value meant and I pulled out a, a dollar bill and I said now this dollar over here In Ghana, I think the CD at that time was maybe seven to one seven CD to one, to one. and I said this is very valuable so I took it and I ripped it. You could hear the Ghanaians kids, like, oh, I said, and I ripped it in little pieces. And I said, now, now, I said, now this. And I picked up a CD note, a, a CD coin, five cent CD. That's not even water money, as the kids said. <laughs> you can't even do nothing with a five, but it has a calorie on the side. I said, You see this piece right here? I'm going to take this back to Nashville and give it to my mother. You know what she's going to do? Every time somebody come to her house in Nashville, she's going to show them some. Money from Africa with a cowrie shell on it. In terms of value, that piece of paper I tore up with George Washington's face on it—that is what drives the way we perceive value. But this is much more valuable to her. After that, after that moment, we took a break. This child came up to me, about 16-year-old, put another one of the coins in my hand, and said, "I know you're going to take that one back, but take this one back and tell your mother I gave her this." value. This is what I'm talking about. So when people talk, oh, you know, y'all are so narrow. Hey, hey, hey. you don't know nothing about it because your master's name George Washington. You're making brown-faced minstrel shows about Hamilton until you have conversations with other African people, particularly at that age, you can't understand. And then on the last day of the conversation we were having with them, this is like day three, the primary chiefs and queen mothers of the region came to observe the conversation. Maybe about ten, about five, five men, five women. They had on their full dress. They had, when they came in, all of the young people stood up. The Ghanaian kids about a split second earlier, but the other kids, oh, they stood. Who brought them in? Leonard Jeffries and Roslyn Jeffries, because they members of ASCAP came. I tell that, and then we talk with them, and basically we listen with them. But I, I tell that story because a generation before, well, not even a generation, 1987, when a 1,000 black folk went to the Nile Valley with ASCAP this this is the biggest trip it kind of relaunched the the study tours like when we're about to go on we're in that genealogy there were a couple of young boys who went with their uncle and auntie Leonard and Rosalind Jeffries to the Nile Valley as children one of them is a professor at Ohio State University my friend Hassan Kwame Jeffries and the other is the minority leader of the United States House of Representatives that will be Hakeem Jeffries
0: so I mean when people think about the Nile we have to rethink the way we think we've been doing this a long time so anyway that no and i i bring it up because you know the uh the jewish jewish children they they have a fund to make sure that every jewish child anywhere in the world can go back to israel that's right and experience that and the value of that you know with the ha- with the hashtag never forget with the constant remembrance of everything from passover to all of the other holidays in between yom kippur to to of course you know holocaust remembrance and all of that reinforces Uh, a certain narrative that gives people pride and also a sense of purpose. And, you know, what you're experiencing and the the couple of hundred people that are going with you, those who've never touched foot uh, and the way you framed it in terms of I'm going to put my foot in the ocean of (laughs) of whence we came, you know, completely, you know, changes everything. You know, even how I'm now going to perceive the beach. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I appreciate that perspective but i feel like we should have a fund somewhere where there's um every child inner city whatever they call that uh should have the summer to go to africa they should they should absolutely and you're muted i'm not sure why okay okay, yeah. okay.
1: all right you no know, no 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 you're absolutely right and in fact we're, we're getting there we're getting there i mean this is you know there are a lot of people who have done that over the years many decades a number of the african-centered schools take young people to the continent from the United States. Uh Aisha Shule and Du Bois Academy from Detroit, Nation House here in the DC area, Kilombo out right down there in Atlanta. I mean I could go on and on and on. The African Center School's been doing this for a long time.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I'm thinking like I, I watched an episode of of Swagger on Apple TV and yeah. it had John Carlos in in a um youth youth uh facility right for you know reform school or whatever they call it a, a pr- prison facility for young people how about and that the, and the <laughs> basketball and, but you know reggie uh rock by the wood his whole purpose was to show the humanity of these children that we look at as criminals right yes so, so he did it and it was beautifully done and having john carlos there as the coach and um as himself and talk about civil rights and things like that i was thinking How beautiful would it be to have those children who have Mm. been caught up in the system because you know the system they don't see them as individuals and as one say, I was 14. You know, as a 14 year old, do you not give 14 year old grace? I know other children get grace for killing folk while uh, having affluenza. Somehow there's grace for, you know, a rapist from Stanford. Somehow there's grace because they have a future. You know, our children have a future and we must demand that instead of incarcerating them, maybe this can be the the trade off. Spend, spend a month in Africa spend a month on the continent. Absolutely. And there should be a program receiving them and take them through the paces. But you know, those are the things that I was thinking about.
1: Um, I, you know, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. In fact it's it's very important as you say. Um and I'm glad you brought up the Israel example. Um I see some folk in the chat talking about yeah you know, Israel is occupied Palestine. It's so funny I was having a conversation yesterday in the uh, bookstore. With uh, I went out to get stuff for Kemet, and then my feet ended up in the bookstore. That's just I just can't, you can't stay away from the bookstore. But anyway, but we uh, they had just received a huge collection from someone who had spent a lifetime collecting materials on the British occupation of Palestine, the creation of Israel. So I'm looking at these rare books, and, you know, having this conversation with them, and and talking about that in the context of what's going on right now in Israel. As we see, you know the Netanyahu administration partnership with the extreme nationalists and the kind of religious nationalists in in Israel to curb the power of their judiciary, and not a hundred, not a thousand, not ten thousand, not a hundred thousand, but millions of uh, of Israelis expressing outrage, hundreds of thousands in the streets, and they still pass the policy. Anytime your military starts saying we don't want to participate. And this is from a military who has been very brutal in its occupation. You're talking now about something where, you know, they're they are going through a real challenge in Israel. And at the same time, the the Jewish diaspora, for lack of a better term, um, which kind of forced the issue by aligning its interests, its material geographical interests with uh, with the colonial and imperial interests of old Europe, England, particularly France, and the United States emerging after World War II, were able to carve out that piece of Palestine and, and name it Israel. The diaspora is also split because they realize, you know, people are human. We all breathe the same air. We all suffer the same illnesses. We all have the same joys and pains. And when you start dealing with brutality, you know, nothing good can come of that. And so Israel is at a at a crisis point now, and it isn't just in the country; it's global. And yeah. we think about that in terms of us as African people. You know, our perpetual ongoing trauma of separation has created uh, an idea of the home continent that is often romanticized. That's part of the challenge as well. However, it is also a point of departure for deepening understanding if we can manage it. And when people make the comparison between the continent of Africa and the country of Israel, I think it is a very legitimate comparison to make when you start talking about how do you create a we? Because people don't challenge it in the way that Africans are challenged. They say, well, you know, y'all don't have a common religion. Y'all don't have a common culture. No, and the one that is called Jewish has its roots in Africa, as we'll be seeing on the walls of the Nile Valley. The question is, where do you begin and what's your objective? What are you trying to do? And so, as you say, if you bring young people to the African continent, realizing that Tanzania is not Ghana and Nigeria is not South Africa and Egypt is not Algeria or Western or Sudan, at the same time, just being on the (laughs) continent in conversation with other young people and the conversation with other people, what is exactly wrong with that? I'll tell you what it does, and this is where I think it threatens the West and those who have been colonized by the West it displaces the idea that if you're in the United States and get to study abroad or travel abroad or go somewhere, your first trip should be to Europe. It displaces that fantasy. Like we just, we finished summer school this week and the young people we had, uh, the STEM students, the car STEM students, Bison STEM students, um, uh, brother, uh, Ron Smith and his, his young charges. These are Students who are full, on full scholarship at Howard. They're studying everything from physics and, and, and biology to chemistry and, and engineer students. And then there's are students in the social sciences and humanities in this bridge program. They're studying African studies and English and, and history, all these things. We had them for a month. They left. Today is Saturday. Oh, they leave today. They leave today for Ghana. Now, this program started about six or seven years ago. The first five or six years up until this year, they went to Europe, they went to Germany, they went, and we and we was banging on them all the time. So now nah, we y'all got us in this class, and then y'all gonna go to Europe. It. Brother Smith finally was able to work. And he said, This, he said that a car, we're going to Ghana this time. I said, See, y'all pick going to Ghana, now we're going back to Egypt. I'll go with y'all and then come back over. But anyway, they are they will be landing in Ghana shortly. Because they said, we got to take, and when I told them, I said, when y'all get there, when y'all go to the dungeon, y'all do a ritual, whatever prayer y'all say, put us in it. And they was like, don't worry, we got you. And I said, go here, you got to do that, you got to go by Du Bois' house. They might cross paths with Catherine Adams, Kathy Adams and her colleagues over there from Claflin. People are taking young people to the convent.
0: Yes. And there's nothing wrong with it, as you say. Nah, that's it. It was the best 10 hour flight I've ever taken in my entire life. I'm yeah, not. You a, tell us. Tell I'm us not, about that trip. No, well, I'm well. not a happy flyer. I hate flying, period. Before COVID and there's all the things and turbulence and I don't understand how we up in the air, this thousand pound thing. that makes no sense. I see clouds and we're heavy. I've, just, I've noticed some science behind it. I just don't understand it. But it was a beautiful flight full of Black people, full mm. of Black people coming and going. All of the flight attendants, everybody was Black. The pilots were Black. I even took a flight inside Africa to Kamasi. The quickest. It was like oh. the best flight ever. And it was like, you know people can drive. You know how people can drive. Well, there's an equivalent of that in the air. you know? And it was, it was just magical. And... Being eating at the ocean side, you know, eating fresh fish, eating, eating, being in community with the nicest people I've ever met—beautiful human beings, nice. Ghanaians are nice, not like us. Isn't that something? We not nice. We not nice here. So they're nice. Some, but, you, but you gotta be nice. Collective collectively we ain't we ain't really that nice (laughs) except for some of you southern people but yeah no it was beautiful it was very beautiful it was beautiful um and it was an experience that uh i'm grateful and i didn't want to have it like in a hokey way so i didn't stay at a hotel i stayed at a house and hung out with people and you know stayed with their family members and you know i wanted to have a real experience with human beings and not you know a um social media event so i didn't even really post until i got back you but know. you're not. we not nice, Professor Hunter. And you did that.
1: You know the ugly American. We done picked up some terrible habits. The American Negro, the first one to get off plane, talking about, can we get to the uh, hotel Where the air conditioner at? I mean, so you didn't do that. So, nah, you,
0: do mean, you know, I was I was raised right by Dr. Carr. No, I'm just playing. I was raised right too, no. by <laughs> and, Margie and Donald. But yeah, and you know, most, of the, and I'm not talking about Nubians. So, you know, if I ain't talking about you, don't you know, let it go. Right. <laughs> but you know, right. you got cousins that don't know how to act. Oh yeah, so, we do. So For sure. For sure. you know, sure. I'm talking about them, not you. But yeah, no, it was, it was, it. I was, I was happy that I went where I went, but I wish I had gone earlier because I think mm. it would have kicked me in a completely different way. And I'm going back, and I want to go to Senegal, and I want to go to Tanzania, and I definitely am doing Kemet at some point. Yes. Um, but I think the more we travel, the more we see how small the world is, and how, 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 what we have here. While we should definitely appreciate it, particularly women. We should definitely appreciate um, what we have that is going away too, which is why we should fight even more for these rights. But it also tells you that, you know, around the globe, we're all really just human beings having an experience and that we should just see each other as people. But I'm so excited about what you guys are gonna be doing because I want to hear everything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What we're doing, we're doing it, we're we're doing And we've been back many times since then. Uh, We were back, uh, I hadn't gone, since uh 96 the next time we went was 2007 we had our ASCAT conference there again in Aswan this is where in 1987 the 1, thousand Africans from around the world mostly from the United States convened and kind of re uh, or extend I won't say re anything uh, let me let me get away from the language of re of life and in that sense we're gonna talk about real we in a minute in terms with him and the suit but um we came back for our conference and that was the last time that Asa Hilliard in his human form physical form spoke to and with um, with us he presented um the next day he kind of took ill and he made transition a couple of days later in Cairo And um, if Baba J is here this morning, uh, today with us, Baba Jeremiah Wright, Jeremiah Wright, uh, Asa was splitting time between the Trinity, United Church of Christ. Baba J had gotten him to kind of lecture with them and and guide them through some of the places they were going because they were in the Nile Valley at the same time. This is the other thing. These journeys to the Nile Valley are not outliers for people of African descent, people are going all the time. We'll probably, if past is prelude, uh, we'll probably run into Tony Browder. Tony has been back and forth a couple of times. Uh, one time his daughter Atlantis back in December last year, uh, Atlantis led the trip. Uh, they've been working now for over a decade on an active excavation site, uh, with, a. uh, a, a Russian uh, Egyptologist, uh, Professor Pishchikova, um, they are excavating and exploring the tomb mortuary, mortuary complex and related sites of uh, a 20 uh, New Kingdom. Uh, new Kingdom official named Karkamun. Um, in fact, when we went in 2000 and. I guess that was 2008, the following year after the ASMA transition, we toured the site. Uh, Tony was there. We were there. Uh, we just missed each other. I think we may have even gone a couple of days before Tony. And uh, we, uh, we took the students that we had. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. But at any rate, so we, we'll probably run into Tony. Um, the last time we were there in 2019, we ran into Tony. My man, T. Owens Moore, and now we ran into them in Cairo. They were headed back. Uh, the dessert Club. We ran into them in JFK. We were all leaving uh, on the same flight. Huge group of people. They've been taking people to Kemet for thirty-some years, consistently. Uh, Clinton Crawford. I ran to Clinton Crawford at the John Henry Clark Room unveiling when I was up at Hunter, and I asked Clinton about the climate in 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 Chemet. Um, in Given the fact that, you know, this whole banter about uh, Kevin Hart cancelling a concert, I see Travis Scott was supposed to do one in front of the pyramids. I'm kind of glad that he put a hold on that for technical issues, whatever. I don't really care. I mean, spectacle is not what we're going for. You know, he'll get there and that'll be great. And just I'm glad it ain't coinciding with us going to be there. Uh, but at any rate, um, the whole Cleopatra mess and all this stuff. And Clinton was like, nah, this, don't even worry about that. You know, and, and and we weren't, we're not, we wouldn't go otherwise. Uh, but Clinton Crawford, we might run into Clinton, and know he's going, Dr. Crawford, who's at the Bureau of Manhattan Community College, or had been for many years. Uh, who else might we run into? Uh, Brother Jabari and them, uh, they're on the East Coast. He and his wife, we usually run, and they usually take a big group. As I said, uh, or did I, we, last time we were there, we were coming out of the Pyramid of Giza and who pulled up but uh malefi asante with his group we ran him a couple of times them a couple of times got a chance to catch up with dr asante of course we all went to temple university so asante was there um and that's just people i'm thinking over of the top of my head that we see you'll probably run into a lot of them um some people started going back last year and even the year before even during covid we didn't do that this will be our first time back since 2019 but to put a bow on the rhythms of how we've been traveling um and it's interesting prop that you mentioned this whole question of yeah how's this thing stand up in the air it's very interesting how people react to flight the cultural dimension. going there every time i've been to the continent of africa there hasn't been a time i've landed where upon landing and we're talking about people going home you know, people taking flights between countries. I remember the first and only time I've been to Nigeria, and I got to get back because that was only a quick burst. Same thing with Ethiopia. I landed in Addis, and Ethiopia landed in Kano, northern Nigeria. And them Negroes burst into applause. <laughs> it's like, ah. I mean, you know, it, it's respect for the pilot. It's also respect for the fact I've been in the air and now I'm on the ground. It's a very—it's a cultural thing, I, Christian, Muslim, how are you. I mean, it's, I think it's an acknowledgement that this is not natural. That's and, right. You know. And did they clap when they landed, bro?
0: Hell yeah! And I—I I was praying, you know, <laughs> praying, praying, and oh, I meant to say, Amen, ra
1: Amen, Ra or Amen. Don't matter. That's the point. Everybody clapping.
0: We—we just we, not a denominational. <laughs> I just wanted to also public service announcement announcement people who are going, please drink water, Got please, to. please drink a lot of water. Please do not dehydrate and pass out. Do not make this trip miserable for the rest of the people because you didn't drink water and you passed out and dehydration is horrible and it will ruin the trip for yourself and everyone. So please do not uh, to hydrate. That's no. all. I just wanted to say that no, And we to hydrate here too. Those of you in Arizona, please yes. hydrate. Please, please. Every
1: every one of the buses we have has, uh they, they keep them stocked with water. You got to hydrate. We're not going to let anybody not hydrate. Absolutely. And we have, I mean, the the folk we're going with, in fact, consolidated is the tour company we go with. And that is because I'll never forget being in Detroit in 1995, uh, sitting, I had just uh, been appointed to the board of ASCAC. And I was the youngest member of the board. I'm sitting there next to Jacob Carruthers. And uh, the consolidated was making their pitch because we knew we were going to go to Ghana and Egypt the following year, and you know a year in advance. Shout out, by the way, to my frat brothers Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, not going to Florida, uh, but you know most organizations go at least a year, some two or three years out in terms of where they're going to go for the following year if they're big enough. And ASCAT, we decide we were going. And when they made the presentation, uh, Moses hananiah who is now an ancestor, very close with Asa Hilliard, really Passy Joe Hilliard, because Asa Hilliard is kind of like the bridge for that whole arc of African-centered um, movement back and forth to the continent, certainly the Nile Valley. Asa had been going for years. Prior to him, the kind of person who kind of paved the way in many ways, although certainly not the first. And we don't get into this first thing. It's ordinal classification. Again, thing of Jacob Carruthers' science and oppression and, and the dangers of ordinal classification, the first this, the first that. But in terms of kind of making the way, we can go back to the 1920s, frankly, and Elaine Locke, who uh, Black people raised money, among others who raised money, but Black people at the center to send Elaine Locke as Negro America's representative when they opened the tomb of Moon, which is very interesting. There's a whole story behind that. Um, but at any rate, so we've been going to the Nile Valley really since the 19th century. Edward Wilmot Blyden, ooh. Christianity Islam in the Negro way stop playing. Oh my god. Yes, Edward Blyden who um No, that's the Negro the film. I don't know who and books have stories and I was I actually put this on Twitter Yesterday because I was sitting leafing through these copies of the Negro yearbook that I was able to lay my hands on and uh, but <laughs> Yeah, anyway, the uh, I thought about um Christianity, Islam, and the Negro race. This is Edward Blyden from 1887. This is the reprint actually from Edinburgh uh, Edinburgh University Press. This is the reprint from 1967. Um, I want to apologize to the bookseller who sold me this book for $20 yesterday, but you know, it's got a good home. And the whole point is that I'm like, what? what I, I mean, I have copies of Christianity, Islam, and the Negro race. Paul Coates, Black Classic Press, bought it back. Into print. And I've actually got the American version of this as well. Elliot Skinner, no, not Elliot Skinner. Hollis Lynch um wrote the introduction. This is the one with Christopher Fife's introduction. Um, but I'm but I'm just saying that to say, in the context of book collecting, and and prof, you know, you've been uh, saying that we need to do this, and I just got word um from Mr. Bloxson's daughter, Noelle, through um his niece, who was my former student. Um, Alex Mitchell, who's out at the California African American Museum, one of my children um, She said Uncle Charlie's ritual will be memorial will be in September in Philly So as I get they get more details and give them to me I'll make sure everybody knows those who want to attend But as Mr. Bloxon would always say and all book collectors know You know when you when you acquire a book That belonged to somebody else There is a story there are stories behind the provenance of that book and often you know like yesterday when i was you know in one of my haunts, having a conversation with the booksellers um i want to know where did y'all get this because i came upon a little corner at the bottom shelf tucked away of about four or five books that shouldn't have been there now i want to know Whose collection did you acquire or who brought these in here? Because I want to know how I'm standing here leafing through a copy of Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race who, uh, written by Edward Blyden who having in, in an art, wow, the ancestors are incredible. He wrote an article called Israel and Palestine. No, an African Palestine. Man, Jake Perez needs to be here. Anson Thompson to put this in my ear. But in that essay, he talks about ancient Egypt and he talks about a Liberian poet named Hilary Teague. Y'all forgive me for closing my eyes because I got to look at it. And Teague upon entering the chamber of the Great Pyramid at Giza, Hufu, which we will be standing in, will have already toured by this time next week. He said, I went in there I looked around and then I, I said to myself, I wish that every African in the world could be standing where I am standing now. T, a Liberian across the continent in Egypt in the pyramid in the 19th century, Edward Blyden in the 1880s, writing about this Liberian poor who had been there before him, said, and then he said, great feelings washed over me. This is what Blyden says. Great period. Oh, by the way, will my Blyden from the Danish West Indies, so to speak. The so-called Virgin Islands, St. Croix. So all these people saying Africans, they got no connection to African-Americans. Everyone should probably just lower the volume and go back to study. Blyden, who says that? I know it's not us. I'm just saying some of our people who have been driven wild by white, blackface, white nationalism, this American nativism. And yes, I'm being very critical because I think we are. it's time to be serious now. It's time to be serious. We can't, you know let's be generous with each other let's be kind with each other let's understand the traumas let's work together but at some point we got to draw a line because it's a lot of line drawing going on right now and we're on the wrong side of too many of them we're going to talk about that in a minute but blyden says i'm standing in the chamber and all i could think of was the liberian poet hillary teague by the way the reason ed blyden would think of a, a edward wilmot blyden Reverend Edward Wilmot Blyden would think of a Liberian poet is because Edward Wilmot Blyden spent a great deal of his adult life in Liberia helped set up the University of Liberia this is a man from the Caribbean who did this. he's standing in the pyramidal hall he says um, and he recites he writes a verse from Hillary Teague's poem where he says from pyramidal hall From Thebes, which is one of the cities in Luxor, temple complex that we'll be going to. Waset is its name in Metternet. As those of you taking that debates course or studying Metternet on on your own know, from Pyramidal Hall, from Thebes, they loudly call, Retake Your Fame. Oh, man. (laughs) He said, I wish. Blinds. I wish I, I I'm standing here looking at this. I'm in this space that these Africans created, and make no mistake, they were Africans. They he says, at that moment, and anybody who has traveled and seen things and been in things and wished that you could have had your mama there with you or your family there with you. Personal benefit. Let's dance, let's dance, let's dance, DeSantis. We're gonna talk personal benefit today, except our personal benefit is we. Not individuals, this ain't no funky capitalist individual up from slavery, striving type BS. You know, you can take that curriculum, we're going to rewrite your whole funky curriculum. In fact, we don't even want your curriculum. You do what you do, we're going to do what we do. And then we're going to dance, we're going to see feet come off. Anyway, personal benefit, collective benefit, Biden standing in the chamber says, I'm here by myself, personal benefit. But I wish every African in the world could be here, personal benefit. It's a different definition. I wish that we was in here. And all I can think of is my friend, Hillary T. And he said, from Pyramidal Hall, from Thebes, they loudly call, retake your fame. He says, if my voice could have reached every African, every African in the world, I would have said at that moment, retake your fame. In other words, you stop, listen to these people. This building's still here. We're gonna go to see it again. It's still there. Oldest, boldest, biggest first scientists put it together in a hint in a in a in a, in a speck of mortar between them big granite blocks and limestone stacked millions of uh, millions of, of, of stones, all of them taller than any than a person, built stacked up on top of each other in a perfect, and it's a ruin. If you want to have a glimpse of what it might have looked like before they took all the limestone off to build other buildings and took the metal off the top, the gold and the silver at the top, you might want to check out one of the many album covers of Maurice White and Earth, Wind, and Fire because that is what they were doing. That's Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism ain't imagining something in the future without rooting it. It's taking the past and projecting it in the present forward to the future as we talked about at Con. So if you want to know what it really looked like, when you can see that metal gleaming from miles away, then you got to almost go look at the the album covers of Earth, Wind and Fire, that's what they were doing. But in that ruin, so to speak, that's how Blyden felt. So yeah, the roots of going to Kemet go back to the 19th century in many ways for Africans who were taken. Now, two other examples, of course, come immediately to mind, Louis Armstrong and Louise Armstrong. Armstrong so moved by being there at the Hor Horim Akhet, the horse of the horizon, known colloquially as the Great Sphinx of Giza, and being in front of the Great Pyramids of Hufu, Hafre, and Menkaure, Re, old kingdom builders. Uh, pioneered by Sneferu, we'll be going to those in the new king in the old kingdom of Kemet. We're talking roughly around, what, 2700, 2800 BC. In other words, almost 5,000 years ago. No, there is no George Washington. Hell, there ain't no king of England or queen of England. No, there's no Spain. Portuguese, Portugal ain't even a metaphor. No, there's no Catholic church. Now, you got to wait on us for that because Christianity came out of Africa, right? So, I mean, there's nothing there. There's no Greeks to talk about or Romans. All that is in the future. When these pyramids went up. So anyway, so, you know, thinking about Lewis and Louise Armstrong there and they so move, Armstrong pulls out his horn. Starts playing the horn. Long live Maurice White. That's right, Walter. Long living. And The other example, of course, is Eslanda Good and Paul Robeson. When they went into the great chamber of the Great Pyramid. And they're standing there. Robeson is so moved that he bursts into song and he sings uh, part of the operatic rendering of Isis and Osiris, Osiris and set. Robeson singing in the chamber of the Great Pyramid to test the acoustics. With that in mind, (laughs) man, I'm thinking about it now. With that in mind, we were there one time with students from Howard and we all got up in the chamber People sweating. We, we we up in there. And there are no hieroglyphs. There are no glyphs. There's no matter that you're in the pyramids of Giza. No writing in the pyramids of Sneferu the Bent Pyramid, the Red Pyramid, the pyramids at Mayun, Dashur, and uh Mayun. But what you're going there for is for to see the architecture, to be in the space. And so we're in this chamber, which isn't big. And I, you know, I had told him the story before, before we went in of uh Robeson. Singing Isis and Osiris, I said, I don't know the words to Isis and Osiris. And those are the Greek names anyway for a and a set. But in the spirit of Paul and that's line the ropes and lift every voice. So we all bust out and lift every voice and sing in the chamber of the Great Pyramid. Y'all going to leave black people alone or not. But guess what? We don't care. We don't care. If you want to sit down and worship a 90-some-year-old queen of England when she passes and shed a tear, that's your business. We'll help your children. Just give us your children. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll get them. But, you know, as for me and my personal benefit, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to bring the Johnson brothers into the great chamber, the great pyramid. So, yeah, we people been going a long time. So like I said, we were there in 96 with ASCAC, there again in 2007 with ASCAC. And, you know, one of the captains of the buses and helping to get the logistics moving for that 1,000 people in 1987 is going with us on this trip. And that, of course, will be the great Kwaku Larry Crow. He and Mamo LaBisi will be there. And uh, Larry's gonna take point on one of the buses we have. He's bringing a wealth of experience. Um, You know, those study tours from the Kemetic Institute reach back to the late 60s, early 1970s. So it wasn't just Kemet with them, it's the Sudan, it was Brazil, it was West Africa, Southern Africa. They went a lot of places. Anderson Thompson, one of the great towering figures, took Africans all over the place and made connections all over the place. He was constantly making connections. Like, like you said, Prof, this isn't just about going and seeing stuff. It's about connecting with people. And it isn't just about connecting with people in hotel lobbies and conferences. Again, this is an academic travel. This is human-to-human connecting travel. Very important. Yeah. Yeah, Don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, by the way, everybody going with us? Uh, Make sure not only your eyes, uh, but both hands are on your passports right now. In fact, if you're in here right now, just go put your eye on the passport again. Make sure you bring it now when you come here in the DMV area on Tuesday to fly to John Foster Dulles or if you're flying out of John Fitzgerald Kennedy in New York. um, Make sure. Uh, LC and Mamola BC going to be up in, in New York, among others. Uh, we got the crack team, we got the A-team. This was always my dream, Prof, to have an A-team. And when we get going next summer, we're going to do the same thing, except it's going to be here. We, we had an A-team. So Larry Nola, BC, uh Deborah Hurd, who is, of course, a first-rate, brilliant scholar of classical Africa. Her particular area of media focus, she does Meta she does the full suite, is, uh, is the Sudan. She does Nubia. She does Nubia with the N, Nubia, I'm talking about Nubia, where the Sudan is right now. That is, that's Deborah Heard. She's going to be there. Um, Shanice Thompson was going with us. Her grandmother made transition, you know, that's my child. And so uh, she's going to stay back. She'll go next year with a lot of people who are going to go with us, obviously, next year, uh, who didn't go this year. And a lot of people who went this year are going to go again. But Shanice was was going to be with us. Um, Angie Porter is going. We're looking forward to her giving at least one talk on her African legal studies theory and protocol. She too, of course, a longtime student of meta nature. It's gonna be very interesting. Mario Bailey, Belithia Watkins. Uh, Angela Carter, uh, my TA and research assistant at um, at Howard, um, is going with us. Um, a lot of people. Um, hmm. Uh, Baba Kahinde. In fact, we just wrap we're rapping next week, Philadelphia Freedom Schools. Baba Kahinde is going with us, Kahinde Graham. Um, long-time student, uh, particularly African spiritual traditions. Uh, so we got we got an A-team going. And then, of course, all of us are going to be there together. So be prepared. Um, we'll be having, you know, we, we've talked about that. We've been having meetings all summer. So um, I won't get into any detail. So for those not going, understand that we are going to share a great deal of this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Loving y'all sending. We're we, we going. and And then, of course, for those who may never set foot on the continent of Africa, personal benefit. Let's dance, Ron. You don't even know nothing about it, bruh. The letters you used to spell your name we gave you. i are even thinking about you. Your creation of a bad turn we made. We done migrated up into this damn place in Europe that caught between the interglacial period. And look what happened. Maybe the lesson should have been, maybe stay a little close to the home next
0: yes. time. Yes. We We're not nice. mad at you, Ron. Stick, stick to the rivers and lakes that you're used to. Come on now. T-L-C. Yes, ma'am. Don't
1: go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> That's right. Please. Yeah. And of course, rivers and lakes. We know about them rivers and lakes. We're going to stand in and out. We are going to uh, stand at the reflecting pool at Waset that they call Thebes. This is the model for what you see down on the mall in Washington, D.C., the reflecting pool between the Egyptian temple uh, that they call the um, Lincoln Memorial. We're going to see where, where that came from and uh, the pile of bricks that they call an obelisk. An obelisk is cut out of a single piece of stone, the so-called Washington Monument. It's not an obelisk. It's obelisk shaped uh construct but we're gonna see real obelisks where that came from we're gonna see the Tekken as they are known in in nature of Hatshepsut. oh yeah the queen i'm sorry i say the queen i'm sorry using the european rendering the pharaoh Peruwa, the great house not gendered peruah And so she's the female pharaoh no you're the understudied misuser of language <laughs> <laughs> no, she's the per-u-ah. She's the, the great house The great house, the pharaohs, not gendered language So don't we'll call her a female pharaoh Understand why Gay Robbins and all the others who are writing about Women in antiquity Yeah, we're not talking about Cleopatra Old and tired Egypt Five minutes before uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans come in and abusing the Nile Valley. No, we're talking about Hatsip We're talking about the, uh, the period immediately preceding her in what they call the New Kingdom, the 18th dynasty, the 19th dynasty. We're talking about Amos, his mother, who was a warrior. We're going to see her battle medals when they drove the Amu out of the Nile Valley from invading. This is a woman who had battle medals from victories in battle. We're going to see the medals when we go into the museum in Luxor. Mm-mm. Let me know. So let me let me let me let me stay up. point. my point is that, uh, yeah, we 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 got some of the veterans from 87 are going Larry crow being first and foremost And so so some of the things some of what we're gonna this these are the two things we'll be doing In addition to Grappling with questions of the Nile Valley and what it means and i'll talk more about that in a second We're going to be spending time Like people always spend time to their personal benefit. Come on, Rhonda. Come on, baby. You don't even know nothing about it. We are going to be learning about each other. So as we know, a great deal of travel is getting to know each other. So we spend a lot of time together, a lot of time on the sites, a lot of time in the hotel, a lot of time, you know, in conversation, in the nightly conversations we have around what we have seen and what we're going to see next. And so, you know, we're going to, Larry Crowe going to share some of those stories. He's been a lot of places, been so many places in his life and time (laughs) and talked to a lot of African people. So, you know, when you are in constant conversation like a guy like Larry Crowe, the connections you make are very different. So when you ask him a question about something, he's going to bring in the memories of so many other people, many very prominent others. You may not know he may connect them all and then connect them all to when we are standing. Standing. In the, at the entrance in the Valley of the Kings and Queens to the tomb of Tutankhamun, or standing in the Cairo Museum when we get to see T and Amenhotep III, who are a fascinating power couple of the kingdom. T, of course, the grandmother of Tutankhamun. T and uh, uh, and Amenhotep III. Amenhotep III, the father of Akhenaten. So we start talking about monotheism and all that. But but Dr. Wright knows that. remember Dr. Wright knows that because he's been many times and in fact, it was when Asa got sick that it was Jeremiah Wright who made the call Trinity United Church of Christ who made the call To the then-junior senator from Illinois to say we need Asa airlifted somewhere where they've seen this illness So he can be treated and that junior senator said, okay, we are ready We got the we got the plane ready in Cairo so he flew from where he was with us in Eswan back to Cairo and Baba J and them had him all set up to leave, but he said, no, nah, I'm gonna stay here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make transition in and out of It's a very moving story of Asa Grant, hey, the third, Baba Amanquatia, who uh, who chose to make transition in the shadow of the pyramids. Uh, that junior senator, by the way, that Baba J was in conversation with in Trinity City, we ready to airlift him to the place where they got it. Uh, His name was Barack Obama. Y'all don't know nothing about it, Europeans. Jeremiah Wright is a giant for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that while you excoriate him from the social structure within the governance structure, you better not even come over here and breathe, breathe any type of invective against Jeremiah Wright. You'll find out. Up around. Find out. But the point is this. <laughs> find out. But at any rate, he made transition in the following year. We went back. Not as ASCAC, although some ASCAC folk went, including the president of ASCAC, Nzingarada uh, Bisha Heru, that following year, 2008, um, you know, I approached the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University, the Director of Honors Program, Daniel Williams, uh, the Dean of the College, uh, who is now an ancestor to great James Donaldson, Said, so, you know, we've been doing study abroad. I've been doing study abroad with the College of Arts and Sciences by then for a couple of years. Our first initiative was 2004, took students to South Africa. Stephanie Joy Tisdale, um, who was on that trip as a young person, she's now the regional director for the Freedom Schools Liberation Academies and Freedom School sites in Jersey and in Pennsylvania and Philly in particular. She'll be going with us. She's on this trip. She first went to the Nile Valley as a teenager in Philly with Dessert Club. Again, Black folk have been going to Nile Valley for a long time. I'm just filling in the blanks for those who think somehow this is some kind of crazy kind of excursion. No, 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 no. Let's talk governance now. We're not talking social structure or the poisoning of African minds. But, um, yeah, we we went well, in 2008, well, 2004, Stephanie was, she was an undergrad at, at Howard. We went to South Africa. That was our first little pilot study abroad see how it would go. And so they went. Uh, I took them, uh, Associate Dean Barbara Griffin, some others. We went, and then let me see. That was two thousand four. I am trying to remember five, six. Went to South Africa again. Seven went to Kemet. After going to South Africa, I think the first, maybe in the first time that the Williams Dana Williams went with me. We co led that. Dana Williams, who's now the um, the grad uh, the, the dean of the graduate school at, at Howard University, uh, went, and then two thousand eight. When Baba Asa made transition, we said, well, we got to come back. We did a ritual in the valley, the kings and queens, that when he made transition, Theopalo Benga was there. Um, so many others. I won't even, if I start naming, I will miss somebody. Uh, Dr. Yassantiwa Blake, who was, you know, so important to us in ASCAC. At any rate, so in 2008, we went again. Except this time, we took about 80 folks. Almost every all but about fifteen of them, power students. I got the university to come together and fund these students, and so we went to the Nile Valley. And uh, also on that trip, of course, uh, uh, Nefertari Nun, Nefertali uh, Patricia Nefertari Hilliard Nun, his daughter, his son-in-law Ken Nunn, good brother Ken. They just unveiled a statue, uh, tribute statue to um, uh, Nefertari. Sister Nefertari, she made. Uh, transition um, Nefertiti I'm, I'm thinking Nefertari Nefertiti none um, she made transition they did it they unveiled the sankofa bird at the University of Florida Gainesville where she taught for many years and did work on recovering the memory of Africans in the Gainesville area personal benefit let's dance drew baby you don't know nothing about it in your backyard baby let's dance let's dance up around find out please Patricia Nunn was on that trip with us. In fact, she and her husband renewed their vows at that reflecting pool in Wysette, messing around with some funky-ass curriculum nobody follows anyway. Anyway, you don't even know nothing about it. Anyway, the point is that uh, both of them teaching for many years at the University of Florida. Yeah, that would be the University of Florida, Gainesville. Yeah, that's in Florida. You really think this curriculum is going to stop us? You don't know nothing about it. You were still rooting around trying to finish your exams at Harvard, Baby. (laughs) <laughs> we was dancing this dance, rumpled suit looking punk. But anyway, the point is that uh, the nuns were on that trip with us uh, and we brought all those Howard students. And since then, we've been back several times. Uh, but this time with 240, we're talking about maybe, even though that's a quarter of the thousand that went in 87, this is the largest group, certainly to come post COVID. The large group I'm aware of, even of Africans who have traveled um to the nile valley in quite some time we sometimes we ran into Ashwar Qua. last time We ran into Ashwar crazy and them We were in at abu simbel and they were coming out of the, uh, the temple of ramses. We were going in So anyway, it's going to really be something and all of this is um <laughs> Sorry, mike, I had to say that because we spent two hours as you know In office hours last monday going through this curriculum and i'm gonna with my eye on the clock, uh go through some of it uh, now, but in the context of what we're talking about, in fact, let me just pause here and and connect these things together Because we started with where we're going um, and we'll do office hours Monday night because we don't leave here until Tuesday uh, So uh, I had my days. Cause I'm always thinking ahead that way I'm not too far ahead in my mind. It's all time released. So I'm thinking okay. We leave Monday. No, it's Tuesday Okay, so I'm prepared for Monday I spent yesterday trying to get a lot of stuff done and when we get out of here I'm going to continue and then we'll be ready but again both hands on your passport put your eye on it Don't play in fact make a photocopy Make in fact scan it a copy and put it on your device or keep you know these passports are The thing that allow you move from place to place again in the social structure. We live in this is the document the key document that enables all others so Kemet we're traveling we go to kimmett for several reasons. In fact, I'm going to uh, pull a couple of other things. As I was saying, this Edward Blyden, the stories that come with books. We've been going to Now about a lot of a long time. They couldn't tell me where they got these books from. And I'm saying, now this is criminal now. I ain't mad at y'all. I'm gonna I'm gonna take them because uh, in fact, <laughs> they did a reprint. I had a copy of this too, but this is a better copy. Um, I got this one. This is Archie Alexander. The story of Archie Alexander, just the brother who remember when they was throwing statues away and then they decided, you know, the statue in Emancipation Park here in DC where Mary McLeod Bethune has a statue, but they had that statue that was unveiled when Fred Douglas spoke at the unveiling and said, yeah, Lincoln was a friend of, uh, black people but uh the negro but he was y'all's president not our president and u.s grant is sitting there and several supreme court justices and 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 douglas basically mows them all down because black people don't want to raise the money for this statue that's the statue with lincoln standing there and this brother here on his knees well the brother there whose family was there who helped raise money his name is arch archer alexander and this is his story the story of archer alexander from slavery to freedom march 30th 1863 william elliott wrote this and uh Of course, he dedicated it to Jesse Benton Fremont, which is his whole story, Without whose personal sympathy and active influence the work of the Western Sanitary Commission could not have been begun nor successfully prosecuted. This little book is most respectfully inscribed, and he talks about the history, the history of Alexander. This is the brother who uh, some people, unfortunately, because they don't know his name, call him the kneeling slave. Whatever, the point is this say they had this and say where did y'all get these books because i want to know but the but the but the but the real i still got them in the shrink. i'll be real careful with these because all of mine are hardbound these are the first unhardbound copies that i have the softbound copies in the original form of the negro yearbook i mean we talked about my real work this is the 1925 26 edition i'm gonna be very gentle with this this is the 1918 1919 edition and then the last one here is the 19, 20, 21 edition. i to put these back in there. Again, you know, books are one thing, the story behind where the books came from are quite another, and I wanna know. I wanna know. I wanna know where these books came from. And then there were a couple of things I picked up to give. I'm gonna give this book. I got a student in mind for this book. The incoming president of Howard University Ben Vincent III is a scholar of the African presence in Spanish, in Spanish diaspora, Spanish America, particularly Mexico. He's written a couple of very important books on, like, black soldiers in Mexico, colonial Mexico. This is uh, the idea of Africans in the Spanish-speaking world very important, and this is a book that a lot of people relied on for many years. This is Leslie Rout, who was at uh, Michigan State University for of years. In 1976, Rout published this book, *The African* experience in Spanish America. And since it was only three dollars, I picked it up to give it to somebody. That's nothing with buying books. You know, if you got a copy and you, you know you it's a couple of dollars, whatever buy it and give it to somebody, particularly a young person. Help them build their libraries. Bloxson did that for me. Bloxton gave me copies of books that I still haven't seen other places. Richard Robert writes History of the AME Church. Um, he gave me a copy of Sir Harry Johnson, The Colonization of Africa by Alien Races alien races being white people. Um, A tropical dependency, Flora Shaw Lugar. You know, when a man like Charles Bloxham puts a book in your hand that's 100 years old and says, I want you to have this, is two things you know. Number one, he loves you because we don't give books. And number two, he probably got about eight copies. Anyway, that's... (laughs) Oh, man. But anyway, he gave me a copy of Frederick Douglass' first uh, autobiography. The 1845 version. Yeah, I don't... I I, I don't know if I've even said it out of my mouth in many years, but the point is that we're building something over this last several years in this conversation. You know, the ground we've covered really in my mind is unmatched. I don't know any place that is consistently done this kind of thing. I'm not talking about black history in two minutes. I'm not talking about kind of, you know, let's do a 10 minute video with a lot of funky graphics and nice you know, and then now I think I know about something when in fact, no, and then at the end put a bibliography, boom, boom. No, we're talking about kind of broad conversational engagement and exposure. As you say, prop breadcrumbs for 177 weeks in a row. And then with the uh, expansion and extension of narrative and Nubia, the potential now, the tapping into potential of all of us collectively sharing it and bringing this together and what we'll be doing in the Nile Valley uh for two weeks is in addition to having this material kind of connection with these these architects of so much of what we call human society today astronomy history in terms of memory keeping and inscription uh, architecture um, agriculture all of these various forms in addition to that we are also going to be engaged in the conversation with each other And so this is just deepens and extends the conversations that we've been having in this in this very Essential place and no, So this isn't a quick drive-by exposure This isn't the use the wielding around of a written curriculum as a battle document that most people won't read and the teachers who Have it imposed on them won't use. So I mean, this is a conversation on on curriculum, but at any rate so yeah, we'll, we'll be going there I'll come back to that in a minute, but As we talked about Monday night in office hours, for those who were in Nubia, and as we'll kind of, you know, tie some of these things together on this coming Monday night as we get ready to take off for the Nile Valley, some of us, and report back, so, you know, stay tuned. The the question of curriculum, a curriculum is just a course of study, a proposed course of study. Uh, the question of standards in curriculum which is a an articulation of what you expect students to be able to know and know and be able to do and then the question of benchmarks for those standards meaning what how are you going to measure how they know what they do and what they can do over time increments of a week or two weeks or six week units or you know those things that used to be still tied to report cards or or midterms and final exams this kind of thing and by the way there are no um Assessments Laid out in these curricula in the curriculum. This uh, everybody I've been talking about, you know, assessments drive instruction so you got to see the test to see how Teachers and others are going to be measured on how well these students acquire this knowledge now we could say, you know the moon is made of green cheese and uh, The sky is red. Yes, that's in the curriculum. Okay, but what's on the test? Well, the test is not going to ask about the color of the sky. Okay, so how you going to measure whether or not I teach these kids? Well, well if we do a pop-in assessment and see whether, what the kids are talking about. If somebody complains and said, my teacher said the sky was blue. Well, then we're going to bring you up. And then you say, okay, the sky is blue. And then we're going to slink back to our corner. See, curriculum, anyway, come my point is, if it ain't on the test, then it diminishes in terms of importance to those who are delivering instruction assessment drives instruction often. So let's not get caught up in curriculum, but we did talk about it and it's very important. I had a conversation uh, the other day with uh, a journalist from Time Magazine uh, who reached out and we had a conversation about this um, because there's been some pushback people this week. And uh, Prov, I don't know how if you have any uh, thoughts this morning or I know it's been, a, it's been a searing story, but on how people are picking up sides in this curriculum debate. Around these florida standards. I mean everybody got an opinion and they all seem to be fixated On that one page that we talked about last week and then talked about much more extensively on monday night in office hours Uh, Page six there the florida standards. In fact, let me pull it up Uh, ss 68 ss SS, social studies standard for the sixth through eighth grade middle school uh, african-american number two analyze events that involved or affected africans from the founding of the nation through reconstruction that of course is what should be called the standard
0: once you laid it out there was no reason to put any more energy on it i got things to do so i appreciate you (laughs) allowing me to not fixate on it myself okay thank you
1: yeah 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 okay very good and we talked about this next week so i'm not gonna do we're not gonna repeat y'all should go back and look at next week's uh, last week's conversation. And if you're in office hours, you get a chance in the Nubia archive to access the video. You can see us going through that, including, thank you, the folk who came in to have conversation, including our sister from Tampa who came in, who is an educator, but who approached the conversation on Monday night as a parent talking about exactly what we were talking about, the curriculum wars and what does and doesn't change as a result. And I conveyed some of that yesterday in the conversation. Somebody will probably find it while I'm talking because uh, I think Olivia Waxman was the author of the article in Time magazine. She's a long-time journalist writing on education and politics for Time. And so, um, you know, what I said was, you know, any educator would tell you. I said a lot of other things. but I think what she quoted me for is, you know, any educator would tell you. Teachers don't follow the curriculum like a Bible. It's not like you quoting chapter and verse from the Bible. It's like, and it's a bad analogy, but I'm going to make it for those of you who might have some legal training or be aware of lawyers. It's almost like it's not even as potent as the universal commercial code, like the UCC or the restatement of torts, if you want to go a step beyond. In other words, here is the broad concept of commercial transactions. It's articulated in a broad document outlining this is how the law works. But that's not a statute. That's not the rule you have to follow when you go into court. That's not what you have to guide when you're writing a contract. It's just the restatement. it's just a kind of articulation of how this code works. but it isn't crafted. it isn't uh, it isn't the law in Minnesota or or Maryland or Delaware. It's not the federal law. it's it's it's, it's just a broad framework. Now curricula ain't even that tight. Everybody in the United States, if you're taking a test, and if you're in the Caribbean, you take a test. or If you're in the continent of Africa or in Europe, you take a test. It used to be you take the test in Ghana or Nigeria. They send a the test to Europe to grade. Why? To decide whether or not you're qualified or based on your test score to get to a particular university. I mean, why are you sending it to Europe? Because we wrote the assessments. Here in the United States, it's the SAT, the ACT. Okay, is it going to be on those tests? No. Well, then, you know, okay, well then, okay. If you're talking about advanced placement, it's going to be on the AP test. No. So when you even talk about the curriculum for the AP uh, African American Studies course, which uh, um, I was asked about yesterday, you know, the question then becomes what are we talking about when we're arguing about curriculum? Curriculum are political documents. And one of the things that has come out over the last couple of days or last week or so some of the people who are pushing back against this criticism of uh the benchmark under what i just read the benchmark which says uh, which asked, which says examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves such as agricultural work painting carpentry tailoring domestic service blacksmithing transportation and the clarification it says instructions include instruction includes how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit and let me just pause here and say again you see the standard uses the word Africans from the founding of the nation through Reconstruction. The benchmark says slaves, tells me that there was some debate on the committee on the language to use. And rather than be exclusive, they were inclusive. Now, at the same time, people have been arguing rightfully so over this idea of how these skills could be developed for their personal benefit, personal benefit. What the hell are you saying? People went through slavery. Okay. Now we got to be careful. Because nobody has articulated how we define personal benefit. So the other thing I said that that uh, I was quoted for in this in this article was that the skills that Africans brought with them from Africa, the skills that they uh, acquired here under duress forced to acquire and co the skills they brought with them, the agricultural skills of black women, for example, in South Carolina, the agricultural, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the technical skills of the Mende blacksmiths in places like Louisiana and in South Carolina, um, the, 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 whatever the skills, architecture, carpentry, all these things that people brought with them and then had to use under duress and then acquired other skills. Personal benefit needs to be defined, I said, because many of those skills were used for liberation struggles. And when I think personal benefit, I'm thinking collectively. I realize that's not the universal definition, but I also realize there is no universal definition. You can't square a circle. And she quoted me for that in terms of this idea that liberation was what those skills were used for. An example I gave, you know, we had a long conversation. Obviously, she just got a short article to write. So, But one of the examples I gave, uh, I thought about uh, medicine, medicinal skills, right? Medicinal skills. Skills, that, and I didn't talk about this Monday night in Office hours, so I'll mention it here in passing on the way to where I really want to go today. We've already entered it, but I want to tie some of these things together. Montpelier. Montpelier. The plantation home of James and Dolly Madison. Paul Hennings, after James Madison died, helped take care of Dolly Madison. giving her money, he was enslaved on that plantation. Oh, he actually enslaved in D.C. Paul Jennings. You can read his memoir. He's the one that saved the Gilbert Stewart painting that became the face of the dollar bill that I ripped up in 1996 in front of the Ghanaian children. And then the child came to me and said, give your mama this coin with a CD on it. We talking revalue. Come on, personal benefit. Drew, do you want to dance? Do you want to (laughs) dance? You don't want to dance. I can make you dance (laughs) if you want. (laughs) Anyway, the point is this. Um, Paul Jennings took care of the Madisons after the death of James Madison, but James Madison had Paul Jennings and others enslaved on that plantation Montpelier. As I told her yesterday, I said, you know, I I remember standing in the dark at Montpelier, my first time spending the night on a plantation. Because we have been called there um, by some historical preservationists and others who are grappling with the question of how you create and preserve sites of memory in the United States. And Montpelier was a place where they were having that conversation. And I agreed to drive down and and be in that conversation. I was great to be there with folks like Ann Chen, who has done a great deal of work around marking sites of enslavement around the world. Um, So Sites, Ann Chen, whose partner, Charlie Cobb, of course, the great historian, the great memory keeper with National Geographic and written many books, but most importantly, the great uh, son of a genealogy, his father, a minister who's featured in Holly Grima's film, The Wilmington 10, brilliant culture keeper, Charlie Cobb, the son, who, of course, was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, just, a, just a first-rate mind, uh, his partner, Ann Chen, of course, who is at the center of the memory-keeping monuments, the diaspora monuments, the monuments marking the uh, traumas and the triumphs of Africans over enslavement. Enslave those markers are all over the world including West Africa again That side of the Atlantic that I chose to stand in my feet was gonna touch that water It wasn't gonna be from this side not first, but at any rate um, Ann was at that meeting uh, my man Brent legs uh, Who should always be? Uh, raised this is the brother who is with the historical preservation work who does the historical preservation work the national historical trust uh, he is in the room and mind you make no mistake When Chicago the the Kojic Church where the, the the funeral of Emmett Till was held was declared a national monument um, when the site along the river when uh, where Emmett Till's uh, Emmett Till was, alleged, uh, was believed to be pulled out and The courthouse there uh, where those white men were let go Whose names we won't even repeat now and the uh, liar wife of one of them who is now got to work out our own so soul, soul salvation for eternity on the other side um brent was at the table for that conversation that led to those historical preservation kinds brent was there at that meeting and a number of other people but i remember the the, the day we got there that night we had a kind of outside uh They had fires and we were in the area of the plantation where the enslaved lived It's very surreal for me But again, I don't make a distinction In many ways between Standing there in front of the places where our ancestors were enslaved at Montpelier And standing In the temple of Ramses II in Abu Simba In standing At the burial site of Harriet. Ross Tubman our mentor in New York and standing in front of the entrance to the tomb of Tutankhamun I don't make a distinction between being able to be at the New York African burial ground and standing in front of the step pyramid at Sakara which is the largest national cemetery in the world you know because Kemet was in continuous formation for More than 3,000 years. So take Arlington National Cemetery times 10 and you still got to go some more centuries to get To what Sakurai was and most of it remains unexcavated under all that sand So to stand there on that Sakurai Plateau where Imhotep Directing work for Joser in the Old Kingdom built that step pyramid is before Sneferu Before Hufu Hafre and rage those pyramids we see all the time. The ones Maurice White and his boys put on the album cover. Stand there and hear nothing because the wind is just blowing across that hot plateau and that sand. Retake your fame. So when I go to New York African Burial Ground, those Africans and the other ones I've been over the place, they all in one thing in my mind. So when I was there at Montpelier, standing there where these Africans had been enslaved in conversation with these folk who had gathered different backgrounds different races ever brooks higginbotham my friend evelyn brooks higginbotham was there we sat around talking and doug chambers was there who published a book called murder at montpelier murder 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 was the case that they gave me. That's the other thing. The things just run together in my mind. Standing in the tomb, in the mortuary temple of uh, Ramses II, as on the walls, you see him with the battle crown of Kemet as the purwa in his chariot running over these invaders, and talking about how he plunged down in the middle of them and held them all off and fought them till his till his uh, regiment got there, and he by himself. And he said, this guy couldn't have killed all these people by himself. But all I could do is I'm sitting there looking at the Meadow and hearing Mario Beatty over there reading the wall, and I'm looking at this chariot, and all I could think of was 50 Cent. Many men wish death upon me. Blood on my eyes, dog, and I can't see. <laughs> oh, Nixos trying to take my life away. I mean, this is that that this is the Shango energy up here. This is this uh this is this Ogun energy right here. In other words, from the other side of Africa and over here on this wall, millennia before that. And so I'm like, man, this cat is up here fighting all these people. Now, of course, it didn't go down that way, but he clearly lived to tell the tale. I'm just fascinated by this. So anyway, standing at Montpelier murder was the case that they gave me is going through my mind. As I'm talking to this scholar who has written this book, Murder at Montpelier, about how the Igbo women on that plantation very likely killed James Madison's grandfather using poisons developed from plants that they uh, acquired the knowledge of what these plants could do, co-mingling with the knowledge of what they knew plants in Africa could do there on the plantation. And they killed James Madison's grandfather again going to the Florida benchmark standards instruction of how slaves you develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit personal benefit i'm re i'm defining it as we not E and O sisters got together and I asked Doug chambers i said prof you really think those women killed james madison's grandfather i read your book he said yeah i said he says i think a strong case could be made for it and what's fascinating is not only the murder which isn't murder is it murder when somebody has you enslaved? Do you want to dance? Do you want to dance? Come on, Drew, with these curricula. Is it murder when you're killing somebody that has you captive? When you're in Boston and they pass ordinances that say black women can't cook inside no more because the houses keep burning down. It ain't stupidity, it's tactics. Instructions include how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, as I told Livia Waxman yesterday. If you're talking about developing skills for liberation, then, or as the man told me in Charleston, South Carolina one time, standing outside one of them churches in downtown Charleston as I had come over from uh, Mother Emanuel, of course, where the murderer Dilla Ruth went in, that is murder, But, uh, you know, I'm standing in front of the chair and the brother's like, you know, you see all this ordinate ironwork and all these symbols in the ironwork? I said, yeah. He said, yeah. You know, as the story goes, as we passed it down, the Africans said, you know, whatever y'all praying to in that white house right there and you want us to build a fence, we're going to build a fence around it and put symbols in this fence because whatever you praying to in there, we don't want to escape out from there. So we're going to fence you in with what we believe. Slaves developed skills. They were blacksmiths before they came to South Carolina. And then whatever you taught them or they had to learn under duress here, they brought with, with what they brought, they used it to protect themselves. Personal benefit. Do you want to dance, Drew, with your little friends? But at any rate, standing there, Doug Chambers said, yeah, I think a case can be made. And then after he was dead, James Madison's grandfather, grandmother, working out her own soul salvation, which would include ownership now, this plantation, Chambers writes about the possibility that they had a deal. What's the deal? Well, the deal is, we're going to put y'all on trial for killing my husband. But the person who got convicted, it was a brother who got convicted of being part of the conspiracy. But the women who were kind of known in the governance formations of probably being the ones, they were still enslaved, but they were not punished. What the hell? So if the grandfather is dead, who gets the plantation? The grandmother. Professor Chambers, are you saying that this white woman made a deal with those black women? I I don't know. I'm just. (sighs) Instruction includes how slaves develop skills. We get caught up in reading things the way white people read them. Maybe one of them skills is diplomacy. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know. But the point is this. As we think about these curriculum standards, what I said yesterday, uh, that, you you know, Personal benefit for enslaved people is resistance. The skills came with us. We commingled them with things we had to learn here to survive, and we used them very often to resist. So that is not how that curriculum is being written. That that wasn't why it was written like that. I agree with that. I'm against the curriculum in that in that sense. It is not how it's being used because we have an underdeveloped sense of we, and our we is often commingled with a we that is clearly a social structure. Uh, uh social structure creation that is antithetical to anybody's life regardless of culture or race but we can use it the way we need to use it particularly when there's no test affiliated with or associated with that doesn't diminish the fact there's going to be a war of people calling themselves calling texts on the teachers and fighting the teachers and pushing them we talked about that monday night too the Potentially, people will be disciplined or fired and they need a job. This this is not to displace any of that, which is very real, which is why we have to organize. We have to come together. We have to mobilize people at a minimum. At the same time, we can also understand the curriculum wars can be very, very, very complicated. And that we have real enemies. The superintendent of Houston Independent School District is now shuttering libraries in Houston. And converting some of those places to detention centers discipline centers for students you know i got a uh i was reading it and then uh Aya Nelly sent me an article my sister gussie uh fuller sent me an article because she's down there in missouri city neighboring the all the off in texas y'all know what they doing because the state took over the houston independent school district because well, they, they didn't want you negroes Running things for yourself, and You want you indigenous people running things for yourself. So you know the white nationalists in Texas—they're not playing any games. We don't, we need to stop playing games, okay? So I want to spend this final little part tying things together a little bit and doing it in a way that kind of maybe helps make a sense of you know what we're talking about. Yeah, Roxanne, I'm looking in the Nubia chat. Diplomacy is definitely innate for us. Diplomacy in Virginia in the late 18th century when you are enslaved is a skill that you're going to have with a white woman whose husband and her got you enslaved. And somehow you live a tell the tale, to tale after killing her husband. Gives a whole new meaning to uh, the benchmark clarification. Instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Do you want to dance? Do you? Because I can make you dance if you want. All right. One of the things I wanted to talk about this morning, just for a little bit, and we've already kind of laid it out, but I want to tie things together very clearly now is, um, why Kemet? Why go to Kemet? Why go to Egypt? People say, you're going to Egypt, your people are not from East Africa, they're from West Africa. Okay, here we go. Okay, why go to Kemet? We, we, why can't we just talk about the black achievement here? Why can't we talk about Mae Jemison? And, why can't we talk about, you know, Frederick Douglass? Why can't we talk about, you know, okay, okay, hey, hey, hey. This isn't either or, don't use that dichotomous logic here. We have to understand that study is a political act. We ain't got to do nothing, but we will suffer if we don't understand that. And so in preparing to go in a couple of days to the Nile Valley, to return to the Nile Valley again, but I think this might be the eighth or ninth time i I've been. never with a group this large and so many good and grown folks. You know, COVID rewrote everything. We have jailbreak. We've jailbroken the university concept. And this is why in about two minutes, all this is going to become a little bit clearer, I hope. The whole concept of how the universities and the kind of hierarchical nature of education in this society and human society, unfortunately, in the so-called modern world, contemporary world, has shaped the way we think about things. This is why what we're doing is so important. And this is why traveling together with an intergenerational group that is anchored and centered in good and grown adults, but we'll have some children too. With people from all over, there are people traveling, Jack Cole coming up from South Africa. We got folk coming from Europe. Cat Adams is going to come across with Sister Makaya, they coming from West Africa to East Africa. All this convening together gives a different energy. Everybody's bringing their brick to have conversation as we are going through these spaces. Some of it is about ritual of return it's why people go to the cathedral of notre dame the cathedral of our lady in paris the place of isis so of course you gotta go now when you're ready we're going to take you to a, new, a late period site an island that would be the island where there is a temple to Osset or isis at a place called filet and when you stand there now you understand where notre dame got it from my goodness, and you can go back to Notre Dame. But when you go back, you'd be like, Okay, you got this from here, you got that double column from here, you got the whole pulpit, and the way you set up your church from there. Why? No, I was standing there. You can't, no, you can't. I can't be fooled by CGI or AI or any other kind of eye. I was literally in the place. When you take the bus trip with all those young people To Washington D.C. to see the Washington Monument And Lincoln Memorial and all that kind of stuff Yeah, I was at Waset So now I know where y'all got it from And don't say you didn't Because we will trace from the day They built that to the day you built this Chapter and verse Do you want to dance? Because I can make you dance if you want This is the threat Why Kemet Is a threat to the illusion Today's New York Times No, not today. Not today. Today was my man, Charlie Blow. Charles Blow say... Let me see. This is Friday. This is yesterday. Where did Charles Blow? Where is that Charles Blow? Oh, come on, son. Let me see. Y'all give me a second because Blow... Ah, here we go. Today is... This is Charles Blow today. And I I think Charles Blow wrote an excellent article in today's... You know, brother Blow. Charles Blow says... Last week, Florida approved an overhaul of its African-American history standards, including guidance that middle schoolers should be instructed that slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Outrage ensued, including from Vice President Kamala Harris, who blasted the standards saying, quote, they insult us in an attempt to gaslight us, end quote. She's right, Charles Blow writes. But I think the project underway in Florida is far larger and far more consequential than many comprehend. The insult to black people and to the country is incidental. Hmm? In the same way that Donald Trump made his bones as America's white nationalist in chief, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is trying to make his as the country's chief Christian nationalist. A subset of white supremacy that holds that God has ordained America as a Christian nation and that its ideals must be protected from the encroachment of pluralism, racial, religious or otherwise. In February 2022, in a speech at Hillsdale College, a private Christian school in Michigan, DeSantis said, Pull, put on the full armor of God, stand firm against the left schemes. You will face flaming arrows, but if you have the shield of faith, you will overcome them. And in Florida, we walk the same line here. Okay, I'm going to keep going, but let me pause here and say, remember Hillsdale College? We talked about this two years ago when, just as Trump was going out the door, he they released the 1776 commission report about America and its values and that kind of thing as a kind of, counter or challenge to the 1619 project and if you remember at the time if you go back and look in the archive you'll see in my mind 1619 1776 the same number because until you can distinguish between the cultural meaning making the ways of knowing the use of science and technology the process of passing movement and memory through time and space between african people both in their specific cultural formations, and how those formations commingled through the process of the collective traumas of enslavement and colonialism. Until you can make that distinction, until there are some clear definitions or some clear ideas about how different people look at different things, then simply having an ordinal reclassification, as Jacob Crowell would say, 1619 is before; it's before 1776. This is the real founding. Okay. My question is, why would you want to uh, why would you want to buy in so deeply to a founding date for the colony criminal enterprise? Philosophically, in terms of a way of knowing, in terms of how you're thinking about time and space, you're saying the underlying message is: I am all in on this enterprise. I think it could be perfected. Once you include me, once you treat people more humanely, but what you're doing with every iteration of saying something like that, you are literally fighting back against the idea of the thing that you're trying to now be included in to transform. Can you transform it without destroying it? The answer is no. You cannot. This is why the curriculum are political documents. They are statements of ways of knowing. They are statements of movement and memory. They are statements of cultural meaning making. They are statements of governance within a different social structure. You can't fix it without Challenging its underlying assumptions. Michael Apple calls it the invisible curriculum. My man Jelani Favors down in North Carolina AT when he talks about how people push back on that. It's some some black people at black colleges, you know, the, the second curriculum. I mean, their curriculum are political documents. When Charles Blow says that these guys are white Christian nationalists, because you can't even call them Christian nationalists. Why? Because personal benefit. Go ask Jesus Christ about personal benefit. personal benefit he would not come down from the cross just to use his skills for his personal benefit he decided to die just so you can't be a christian come on reverend right reverend dr wright only reason i'm talking now is because you in the chat, but I would much prefer you or Freddie Haynes take this, or Bishop, Bishop's come out. You know, or, or, or Bishop Alvin Clay, you know, whose granddaughter now is getting ready to graduate from Howard in a year to a son, grandson in Morehouse, Pearl Clay's kids. But the point is this I would much prefer one of y'all do this, Bishop Vastime McKenzie. But, but the point is this personal benefit in Christianity are oxymoronic if you're taking it from its founding ways of knowing not from the way the Romans snatched it for personal benefit, shout out to the Pope, except Francis. They don't like him. Why? Because I'm trying to expand this. Anyway, the point is this. you got to say white Christian nationalists. And what Charles Blow is saying in this article is that this whole contretemps is about white Christian nationalism. It ain't even about black people, really. It's about a way of knowing that props up this hierarchical oppressive system, and that system will tell women to go somewhere and sit down, say slavery's okay, and don't say it don't, because y'all be real old testament when it comes to you keeping your thing, white Christian nationalist, the clan riding high. He goes on at the end. He says, insulting black people may be an effect, but it's not its ultimate name aim. As Anthea Butler, a professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of White Christian of White Evangelical Racism, the Politics of Morality in America told me. Christian nationalists don't care about insulting black people. They're on a mission to establish a pretension of naivete to absolve whiteness of guilt. Kind of sounds a little bit like what our brother and friend, Mike Harriet wrote in The Root the other day. It's about whiteness, not blackness. As she put it, we are just pawns to their narrative of how they want to make greatness. Sure, absolutely. But yesterday's... New York Times, had an article by this guy, one of the chief architects of this mess, Christopher Rufo. We know the name Chris Rufo. Y'all publishing Rufo in the New York Times. Of course, the New York Times is a social structure paper. I prefer it in the Financial Times and some other things because the Financial Times will at least keep you aware of how the criminal enterprise is unfolding. Again, y'all see while we over here having a conversation in the U.S., those of us on the continent of Africa and other places keeping track of what's going on in Africa, you saw you just had a coup d'etat in Mali. Well, they also had uh, a big meeting in St. Petersburg called the Africa Summit. And who was at the Africa Summit? These continental African leaders saying that they ain't going to deal with colonialism uh, the same way. We shouldn't be enslaved. The brother from Akino Faso who took over after the coup say that Vladimir Putin sitting there clapping. People saying, wait a minute, I thought we was against Putin. Uh, I think we should be for ourselves, which means we should put aside all these social structure media platforms and try to do some research and have conversations on ourselves and try to not pick sides Unless or until we kind of know more what's going on, but here's the thing that struck me: this is the front page of yesterday's Financial Times. What the hell? Who the hell? Oh, this is Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, the founder of the Russian paramilitary group Wagner, shakes hands with Freddy Mapuka from the Central African Republic delegation yesterday in Saint Petersburg. That's the guy right there. With all the militaries in Africa backing a lot of the people who are doing the coups, putting the French out, and they saying French ain't going to be the official language no more. How do you make sense of this? Conference call, Exide Wagner boss appeals at sidelines of Africa summer in St. Petersburg. We better slip. You can't trust any of them. I would trust these papers before, and by trust, I mean, I get more information from them. But the New York Times said, we got to be even-handed. So we're going to give space to the white nationalist Christopher Ruffo who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute who is helping to lead this charge. He's the one who, uh, one of the ones that um, the governor of Florida appointed to be on the board of one of the Florida universities. This is the new college, he's on the board of that. But here's what I'm gonna go with this as we kind of tie this together. Ruvo writes this whole article called University DEI Efforts Work Against Liberal Education. So K-12, you got these standards, which Charles Blow is saying is part ideologically of this white Christian nationalist move to render a concept of America that is very true to its founders and origins, even though many of its founders were not Christian, deists really. But philosophically, this, this centering of the individual personal benefit, the the, the cultural assumptions in white Christian nationalism fit comfortably for interpretation in the cultural assumptions of the, set, the colonial logics of the English, of the French, or the Spanish, or the Portuguese, even though the French, Spanish, and Portuguese are gonna to cluster together more closely than the English. Ultimately, as they resolve some of their tensions or at least incorporate them on this side of the Atlantic, wrong side, of the Atlantic, which you might call a melting pot thesis, the melting pot melts them into white. And as Thurgood Marshall famously said in his descent from Baki, the Negro didn't get melted down. Thank God, Du Bois might say, because if you melt the Negro down into that, which is what we were talking about last week, assimilation is annihilation. Because if you lose your cultural self, you lose any shot at changing the fundamental terms about which this settler state has been created. In fact, the contemporary world, you've got to contribute your unique ways of looking at the world to the larger human conversation, which is why I say 1619 and 1776 is the same date if Phyllis philosophically and culturally, you have abandoned some of the things you brought with you, some of those skills, which are also cultural meaning-making, which you use to resist for your personal meaning collective benefit. If you abandon that, then yeah, I see why you got problems with this Florida curriculum, because you don't have no place to stand. You don't even remember enough to resist. In fact, you are not your ancestors at that point, and you damn sure ain't their wildest dream. Rufo writes, Academia is in the midst of a generational turmoil. Blue states such as California and Oregon have recently transformed their public universities with expansive diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that have profound implications for admissions, speech, hiring, and scholarship. Red states such as Florida and Texas have recently passed legislation abolishing them, concluding that the programs have that have sprung up to execute DEI, promoting uh, promote a stifling orthodoxy that undermines the pursuit of truth. He says he goes on. I'm gonna get to the point because he talks about he gives his bona fides. Right, he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Gonna be important, let me put my time on, gonna be important in about five minutes. Keep that in your mind, Manhattan Institute. He uh, was recently appointed by DeSantis as a trustee of new college. They are trying to have this model college for their white Christian nationalist belief. This is what he says. He says, the most significant question looming over this debate is one that unfortunately has rarely been posed by either critics or supporters of DEI programs. What is the purpose of a university? For most of the classical liberal tradition, the purpose of the university was to produce scholarship in the pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful. The university was conceived as a home for a community of scholars who pursued a variety of disciplines, but were united in a shared commitment to inquiry, research and debate, all directed toward the pursuit of the highest good rather than the immediate interest of partisan politics. I'm going to summarize this. So I'm not going to read through this whole thing. I just want you to know Christopher Rufo, a right winger who the New York Times gave real estate for yesterday to have a conversation about his perspective, which I embrace because I don't have any investment in the New York Times. I'm glad they're letting everybody talk. Some people lose their minds, but that's because they think somehow the New York Times is for them. One of these days, we're going to figure out. But there ain't no such thing called the United States as a nation. And that people protect their interests. But the reason I read this, because Christopher Ruffo's challenges, he's talking about uh, classical education. By classical, he means white. The curriculum in Florida K-12 is centering whiteness, as Mike Harriet wrote. And the blackness they want to bring in is an accessorizing blackness that reinforces those fundamental values, individualism, free market, capitalism, profit, you know, all these kind of things. OK, fine. But here's the problem. The problem ain't them. The problem is us. The problem is when we accept that and then argue as if somehow we got some shared understanding of what we're talking about. We don't have a shared understanding. Rufo's argument is that you should eliminate diversity and then people would just earn their way into the conversation and the teachers and the students anyway should be the ones driving it, not the administrators. But he don't even mean that because they are trying to get rid of the teachers and administrators at that very same University of, of Florida where Ken Nunn taught, where Priscilla Nunn taught, who went with us to and of course, who's uh, 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 Nefertiti's father, Asa Hilliard leading that, and, and, and Ken's son-in-law, uh, father-in-law. Leading that, that very same university had five recent openings in the African American Stage Department. My man Dave Kenton chaired that department down there, my old buddy from grad school. And they can't get black people to come. People boycott in Florida, people. But as we talked about on Monday night, the people in Florida are resisting from within and we need to be able to support them. Even as we make these broad political gestures, we have to understand that we're not going to give Florida up to you because we can make you dance if we want, but our ultimate objective is to repair ourselves and this curriculum is not going to slow us down. In fact, we can reach inside the curriculum and turn it inside out and that's if we're using the curriculum. All the teachers will tell you you don't follow the curriculum like a Bible. Certainly if it's not on the assessment, the state assessment, the local assessment, the local school board, what's going on in your school, they're going to have to do a whole lot more work before they can put this ironclad thing down at the level of the classroom. And they ain't even got muscle like that. First of all, they're stupid, but that's a story for another day. Or maybe it is for today. The, the five minutes is about two and a half minutes in, so let me get to the point I want to make about the Manhattan Institute as we talk about this process. But before I do, let me put a footnote on this question of the purpose of the university. As we know, when we read W.E.B. Du Bois, and I'm, I'm thinking, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I think we might need to just put Du Bois's as the education of Black people as something we do in office hours at some point. We just need to read the whole book. Because Du Bois tried to tell us the, uh, over a century ago about this. In speech after speech after speech, what is the nature of education? What is the nature of a university? When we go to the tomb of Tao Tep in Giza on the Sakhar Plateau, when we see Tau when we think about the phrase Medu Yawu, train your replacement, creating a staff of old age, the purpose of education is to replicate your society in the next generation, to hand on that work. Well, since there is no such thing called the United States of America as a broad national idea that we all share, the curriculum wars are wars over how you can perceive this society, because one of the functions of education is socialization. This is why the wars are so viscerally fought, particularly among politicians and academics and folks who have not been in the classroom. In fact, what I told Libby yesterday is the farther you get away from the classroom, the more confused you get about what's going on in the classroom. These, these standards wouldn't slow me down. In fact, these standards won't slow a lot of teachers down. Now they're gonna we're gonna have to fight because they're gonna try to fire them, they're gonna challenge them. But one thing that you got, if you got facts on your side and enough of us support you and back you, you can break the backs of these people. We can make you dance if you want. But the point is this in this process, what Rufo is saying, his definition of university is different than Du Bois's. Du Bois said, our universities must ground in our culture. They don't. The problem of DEI at HWCUs, at PWIs, at predominantly white institutions or historically white colleges and universities, that's a problem of them accentuating the, the framework that they the way they see the university. HBCUs, increasingly, unfortunately, almost like DEIUs, the whole university. HBCUs or PW, uh, PBIs, predominantly Black institutions or historically Black college universities, if your framework is indistinguishable from the white schools, then you have not met Du Bois's challenge. Du Bois said, what does it look like? There are universals in human experience, but there are many ways to get there. As Dan Black, quoting from the Bible, name one of his novels, "Is 12 gates to the city. There are many ways to get there. What is our gates? Where are our gates? What are our groundings? The university has remained unimagined among African people, and the irony is we are the ones who created the, four, the foundation. For what they now call the university, we are literally going to be standing in some of those spaces. We're going to be standing in places where the scribes gathered. And this is the foundation for anything Belagna, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale. Yeah, now they got their own spin on it, which is what Du Bois says they should have. But what is your spin? Where is your mosque at Sankore at Timbuktu? Where is your concept of the higher education space? What we've done by jailbreaking the university is clear the space for us to remember, for gathering the momentum of memory so we can set ourselves again. And that setting is not a hierarchy based on test scores and grades. In fact, Lonnie Guineer, before she made transition, her last book was called The Tyranny of the Meritocracy, Democratizing Higher Education in America, Lonnie Guineer, 2015. And what she says in here is, if you go to college or university in the United States, she said, once you get past the first year, maybe two, your test scores and grades aren't really what marking your achievement. What's marking your achievement is your performance in the space that you're in and that the key to successful learning is collaborative learning, is learning collectively. She said, I even propose that students take tests together. Work collectively. Well, that speaks to what Du Bois said. He said, I saw a perfect system of education in Africa. Everybody was in a circle working together. The elders helping to guide and teach and the young people are learning. Everybody's moving together. Collective learning. Well, that blows the doors off of this idea of rat race, survivor based, you know, uh, voted off the island type individual test score and grade based achievement. But guess what? That is what allows the hierarchy to replicate itself. And that's what's replicated in these Florida standards. Individuals, individuals. Instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Yeah, you had individuals. You sure did. Harriet Tubman was an individual. And then she went back and got 300 more individuals. Son, what are you talking about? You had greedy individuals. Certainly Europe Europe has no uh, monopoly on individualism. So you're gonna find examples like that, but for every example like that, you're gonna find many more examples under the duress of resistance where Africans collectively came together and resisted and used. Personal benefit did not mean their individual benefit alone. It meant collective. And so when Lonnie Guineer is talking about rethinking higher education, she is presenting a challenge to Christopher Rupo's idea of the university as is Du Bois. And so Let's turn finally to this place in the curriculum. Oh, one other thing, Manhattan Institute, my five minutes is up. Christopher Rufo works at the Manhattan Institute. So I'm digging through Manhattan Institute, Manhattan Institute. This is a book that the Manhattan Institute published in 1994. Let me make sure, I think it's 94. Yeah, February, 1994. It's called Alternatives to Afrocentrism the Center for the New American Community, Manhattan Institute. Linda Chavez, some of y'all remember that name, John J. Miller, they call something called the Center for a New American Community. The Manhattan Institute was founded by some millionaires and billionaires to come together. These are the people that were on their board at that time in 94, Linda Chavez, John Miller, some of these names, Michael Myers was a prominent Negro. You see him in the New York Times every once in a while. Albert Shanker, oh, we should talk about Ocean Hill Brownsville. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Abigail Thurston, uh, another big critic of affirmative action. Albert Shanker, because I talked about. Shelby Steele, of course, uh, who's against affirmative action, that kind of thing, he wrote the um, the uh, content of our character. But look at the essays, because this is the point I want to make. What we're seeing in Florida now, all this, I'm against CRK, stuff that we're seeing, the anti-CRT stuff we're seeing. This is another iteration in what Jake Carras would say is the long intellectual warfare against our people. It is a continuing response to the wars that took place after the end of apartheid jim and James crow in this country in the 1960s the black power movement the black uh, aesthetic movement the pan africanist movement the, the 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 creation of space where african people began to define ourselves our values and bring them into those learning spaces and they created real challenges against this western system And they continued, strengthened through the 1970s. And by the 1980s, full-blown conflict breaks out. These are the curriculum battles. This is the things we talked about before when I talk about Arthur Schlesinger, the disuniting of America. This is when I was coming of age. So, President Hunter, you asked me about, you know, standing in the right side of the Atlantic as 31-year-old in 1996. By then, I had been about a decade involved in this as a student. And as an apprentice of many of the people who they were trying to crucify, Jacob Carruthers and Leonard Jeffries, Milana Karenga and Malefia Sante, Marimba Ani and Vivian Gordon, all the, um, they just you know trying to crucify them. Why? Because they these are mostly university battle, but then they get involved in K-12. Some of y'all were around for those battles. And what you see here is these people funded these Negroes to come and attack the question of African-centeredness. you got Gerald Early, who's gonna always be relied on to do that, the anomaly of Afrocentrism. Wilson Jeremiah Moses, who I sat with one time, had a lot of respect for John Clark. He writes an interesting article called In Fairness to Afrocentrism. What he says is that the Afrocentric movement must be understood as a variety of utopian or millennialist movements, although the Afrocentric utopia is in a romanticized past rather than a chiliastic future. Afrocentrism is not a new movement. He goes on, he wrote a book called Afrotopia that's very interesting. I still, But, but I, you know, Wilson Jeremiah Moses is a beast. Wilson J. Moses is incredible. Also in some ways a Europhile. And I think he's also very careful and nuanced because see, this is what the enemies of African-centered thinking and work do. They go find the people with the most flawed arguments and use them as a proxy for everybody else. There are certain people they don't mess with. Let me quote Jeremiah Moses here on page 18. He says, in defense of Afrocentrism, it must be observed that the father of contemporary Afrocentrism, Sheik the joke. let me pause here and say this ordinal classification, father of this, mother of that. I dispatch, no, don't, don't do that. Sheik the joke is an outsized influence. When Jacob Carruthers goes to see him in 1970, I think it was four, where they went over, and Sheikh the joke. said, so you got to study the, the Mediterranean, the Egyptian language. We're all studying Egyptian language in some ways because Sheikh the joke. told Jacob Carruthers to get back over there and learn that language, which he went over to the Kemetic Institute with Ricketti Wimby and Roosevelt Roberts and Yvonne Jones and others. And they began, uh, Joseph Ben Levi, and they all, many, all of whom have been to Kemet many times. They began to study that language and we study language now because there's a bridge that's been built There's an intellectual genealogy. Most people critiquing afrocentrism If I wrote afrocentrism and your uniliterals on their forehead, they could not Translate it. We can make you dance if you want. So before you open your mouth start talking about oh, hotel, hotel, hotel yeah, okay You don't even know what you're talking about and now because you don't know what you're talking about you arguing with Andrew DeSantis, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis in starts say Andrew Gillum, because if he had just let them keep counting the votes, we might have even had to deal with this in the first place. But at any rate, you are dealing with Ron DeSantis because you don't know enough to fight back. The war in curriculum is about gaining enough of the momentum of memory to be able to displace this propaganda, this ideology that Charles Blow is talking about. We're coming there, about to come in for a landing. So uh, he says that in his book, Civilization of Barbarism, Shake to Job, demonstrates a respect for the concept of cultural literacy. He is opposed to the vulgar type of black culture that had has been dominant since the Harlem Renaissance to the 1920s. I don't uh-uh, don't do that, don't do that. Wilson Moses, maybe he didn't know, that Sheikh the Joke, shortly before he made transition, came to the United States, came to the Nile Valley Conference in Atlanta in 1984, held by the study groups, many of whom stopped with many people who went to, came at many times, the great Larry Obadelli Williams, of course, Asa Hilliard, uh, uh, Naeem Akbar, uh, my man LeGrand Clegg, who was there. Um, Charles Finch, who just wrote another book, Now Valley Civilization. So maybe Wilson Moses didn't know how much Sheikh Ante Jope was in concert with the Africans of the diaspora. But I'll give him grace on that, because, again, he's a beast of a scholar. And I know he's writing politically for a billionaire funded outfit called the Manhattan Institute that's still creating chaos with Chris Ruffo in 2023. Anyway, he says Jope is also suspicious of the sentimental black cultural nationalism associated with Leopold Senghor and the French Negritude School. I'll give him a little bit more space there. Here's the point. Like the late African American critic Sterling Brown, who we talked about many times, Jope condemns the treatment of black folk as jazzy, exotic primitives and erotic barbarians. Afrocentrists resent the tendency to define black culture in terms of primitivism grafted onto decadence. Jope's ardent followers are also opposed to the profane, scatological variety of black ghetto culture that is associated with gangster rap, signifying monkeys, and playing the dozens, word games based on ritualized insult. The Afrocentrist dreams of appropriating the high culture of classical civilization and disdains the low culture of gangster rap. Although some may defend Two Live Crew on First Amendment grounds, few are sympathetic to the proposition that Two Live Crew represents Black culture. Most Black nationalists, including Black Muslims and Afrocentrists, insist to their credit that gangster rap must be understood as social pathology. Unfortunately, many of these same Black nationalists have undermined their credibility by their fundamentalist anti-intellectualism and their paranoid ravings about the Iceman inheritance, Jewish conspiracy, and melanin theory. My man, you are doing the most in that paragraph. Wilson Moses, as Dr. O'Benga, the junior protege of on the Job, and our teacher of metal nature, along with Jim Carruthers and the folks at the Kemetic Institute, would say, Dr. O'Benga might say, you've mixed many things. But let's pull out a couple of things. One is the idea of high culture. People think y'all study in Kemet, but you don't study Uh, the working class people, the poor people, the people in Kemet, the people in Africa, the people in the diaspora, you want to go to the kind of high class culture and you're not dealing with class. This is Clarence Walker's uh, mixed minded uh, article in here called The Distortions of Afrocentric History. No, let me say, first of all, that is absolutely true for some people. And that is not what we're doing. That is not what we're doing. What we have to do, and we're going to see this when we go to set ma'at, the place that is called Dera Medina in uh, Arabic, set my eye, the place of my eye. Place is one of the words they often use for villages or places. Set my eye, the place of my eye. This is the village where the people who worked on the tombs and temples lived, the people who drew and painted the Medinet, the people who carved out the places like Hatshepsut's Mortuary Temple, those places. And when we stand there and look at the simple way these folk lived, the way they enjoyed their lives, we go there. Specifically to grapple with the question of class, we don't know who could or couldn't write in Kemet. It was the only elite could write. I'm saying you don't know that. You just make that assumption because you from a society where everybody don't get a chance to go to school. You don't know nothing about it, and we can make you dance if we want. But do we want to put our energy in arguing with y'all or do we want to put our energy in building through the momentum of memory our rebuilding our governance formations, formations that prior to the end of apartheid in the United States, we were very clear about the idea that everybody in this classroom going at least know how to write legibly. Yeah, we're going to give out test scores and we're going to give out awards. But if you finish your work first, you go help somebody else. Lonnie Guineer is introducing that like that's a novel idea. It is novel to the Europeans because they got an individual Hunger Games based survivor based achievement system and education. And they think like Christopher Rufo, that the best thing you do is put everybody in it. Go. I can't. I, I'm, I'm changing. I don't have. And then people say, oh, I got to I don't want to do is take chains out all I don't want to do take chains out, And then you come running into the curriculum. Somehow, like your problem is not the curriculum construct and the ideology necessarily. Your problem is you ain't in it enough and you got a couple of words you arguing about. No. Philosophically, you got to change the way of knowing. And what we are faced with, with things like alternatives to Afrocentrism is they know this is a problem because the people they're talking about ain't paying no attention to them. They're trying to re-seize the control of power for people who are jailbreaking, who are escaping, and right or wrong. Because some of the stuff needs to be critiqued very deeply. But as Wilson Moses demonstrates, I ain't going to jump on on under Joke. Why? Because y'all shouldn't jump on him because he's going to make you dance if he want. You got to go find somebody like Mary Lefkowitz beats up on George G.M. James in here. They like beating up on George G.M. James. That's kind of thing. You could beat up on George G.M. James. Why don't you try Theophile O'Benga? A who? Yeah, you know who it is. You know who it is. But you can't talk about them. So you got to pretend like they don't exist. But now too many people are working outside you. You got to get some control on this. All right, coming in for a landing. Coming in for a landing. The last section of this little pamphlet, which isn't even 100 pages, it's 96 pages. What every student should know. And then they poll all these people, black and white, Kwame Apia, suggest you should know. They ask him one book, Things Fall Apart. Tony Brown says sex and race, J.A. Rogers. Tony Brown, now an elder, reaches back to somebody, the Jamaican writer, Joel Augustus Rogers, and breaks the paradigm. He's picking somebody outside the university system who's writing about Africa from antiquity forward. This is a problem. Lynn Cheney, remember her, "My Bondage and My Freedom." Frederick Douglass, Lynn Cheney, is that Dick Cheney? Yeah. At the time, she was at the American Enterprise Institute. She says, "I pick Frederick Douglass." They they like that notion of the heroic individual. Principal Joe Clark, Mr. Clark, yeah, Mr. Clark said. The content of our character shall be steel. again that that kind of austere. These people need to be brought in line. Joe Clark might say a lot of that rap is pathology. Okay. Skip Gates, Henry Lewis Gates, the souls of black folk really Nathan Glazer United States uh, his, Negro history, the history of the Negro in the United States, E. Franklin and Frazier and from slavery to freedom, John Hope Franklin. I'm not going to read all these because there are a number of them, but I will make an interesting observation because Glenn Lowry in here, Andrew Hacker, Michael Myers, of course, Carol Mosley Braun, who suggests The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Senator Carol Mosley Braun. Wilson Moses suggests three books, The World in Africa by Du Bois, very good. Three Negro classics by John Hope Flank, which is Up From Slavery. I forget what, uh, Souls of Black Folk and one other, I forget, what I, mean, I think my bondage and my freedom. But he suggested the wrong Bennett before the Mayflower. Oh, there's some line here. Before 1619? <laughs> okay. He's not alone. Who else suggested that? I like that what Diane Ravage said. She said the Dictionary of American Negro Biography. Um, somebody else. I'm not going to go through it. Let me, let me just look here. Juan Williams says Invisible Man. Um, yeah. No, I'm good. Uh, there was at least one other person that did. Uh, Frank Yurko, who was their favorite pet, who would try to say, I'm an Egyptologist and I'm saying there's a way to study Egypt, but you don't need to do what they're doing because race, the Egyptians wouldn't have known race. We're not arguing over whether Egyptians would know race. We're not going over there looking for black as a racial construct. We're looking at the culture of African people. Don't dance. When we go into the Cairo Museum and you see them uh, human hair, wigs that they shave their heads and then use the hair to create wigs because it's hot over there. They can take all their hair off and put their hair on. And their hair look like the hair on our heads. That's all. Is that, Frank? Come on, Yurko. Carruthers wrote a whole pamphlet called Carruthers on Yurko. He can make you dance if you want. But he says the legacy of Egypt. Very interesting. But the reason I'm raising this is because this same Manhattan Institute where it is one that Rufo works at now, they're still after it. Now, coming in for a landing, the AP course, Advanced Placement Course in Evergreen Studies, tries to bridge the gap. The criticism of the AP course is Afrocentric states course is that uh, Robin Kelly never made this criticism. They deal with ancient Africa, they deal with Africa, then they skip over Black Lives Matter and intersectionality and stuff. And they no, first of all, they don't do that. Second of all, Robin knows better than this. He's written about this as well. The reason we go to Kemet, the reason we talk about ancient Africa and tie it to the rest of the continent of Africa and then to the Africans who were taken out of the Africa is because it is a fluid. Sometimes contradictory, but necessary reconnecting to understand how Africans have been in the world from the origin of humanity to now. We go there. This is what Asa Head is writing about in his essay, Why We Study Kemet. So we can ground ourselves in a, a ways of knowing, in uses of science and technology, in cultural meaning making that allow us to reclaim the momentum of memory. Something we have been doing, by the way, for a very long time. And the AP course tries to do that. But the challenge the AP course does is that it hasn't built the cultural momentum of memory. It's more chronological. So in other words, when you read something in the Florida uh, standards that says instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. What is missing from that suggestion is the why, is the ways of knowing. This is the problem. The deep work is to be in conversation with ourselves to begin to draw out ways that African people have been in the world that compare to other ways other people have been in the world. We're going to see same stuff, similar stuff, and distinct stuff. We're more interested in the distinct stuff in the short term because it contributes to this larger humanity, but we have been blinded to the possibility. So even when we think we're doing something that's going to enhance our people like the AP African American Studies course or fighting back against these Florida standards, we haven't yet consulted with ourselves deeply enough to bring out the why so that the anger over the language in this curriculum is over the phrase personal benefit and what has not remained unimagined is what we mean by personal benefit and make no mistake about it there are different ways to talk about personal benefit there's no me without us people say well that's a semantic argument isn't all argument over curriculum semantics until it's not Jailbreaking the university means withdrawing from this hierarchical process and inviting all of us into the conversation because that is the source. So I'm gonna finish with an article here. This is from the Compass, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, ASCAC. Um, These are in print, volume three, issue one. And we were very deliberate about putting these in print because we wanted a print version of these to go along with any electronic versions. Jago Carruthers has a 60-page article in here, The Wahemi and and Pan-African Historiography. It is a chapter in the larger work of the African World History Project that we have. And what he says in this article is very clear. And I'll end with this. There are three points. This is where the stakes are. This is why we go to the Nile Valley. This is why on Monday night in office hours, We'll go through the periodization of the Nile Valley and talk a little bit about the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom, Old Kingdom, the the classical foundational age, the Middle Kingdom, particularly Amenemhat, the Wahemi Mesu, which is why Carruthers names his article Wahemi Mesu, the repetition of the birth. When you find yourself in times of trouble as a society, you try to go back into your memory for the things that are good and bring that forward informed as well by the things that have traumatized you and that you have suffered so you don't make those same mistakes. When you're writing curriculum, the curriculum in the United States is anchored in the settler colonialism. So the founding grounding assumption of any U.S. curriculum is displacement of the aboriginals, which is never mentioned. Then you come forward with the assumption that the United States is a good thing. As Charles Blow would say, for the white Christians and ancestors, it is literally ordained by God. Manifest Destiny. Schoolhouse Rock. We learned it as children. The traders, trappers, and the settlers, the politicians and the peddlers, they got there any way they could because they come in West and there were plenty of fights to win land rights, but the West was meant to be. It was manifest destiny. Gonna use your music to sell settler colonialism and and what's your argument with it not settler colonialism your argument with did you talk about the buffalo soldiers Yeah, and, and, and okay, y'all yeah, want to talk about the indigenous people too? Okay, so yeah, they made Oppenheimer, and they didn't talk about the play, way that they displaced the Africans, the Comanches, um, and the indigenous Comanches in them in Los Alamos. I mean, so let's add that. Want to talk about that? Okay, can we talk about the whole principle of creating the atomic bomb? You yeah, want to talk about that too? Okay, can you bring in other cultural ways of knowing? Yeah, that's hard. Okay, can we just add some people to the curriculum? Can we talk about resistance today? The real resistance to this curriculum lies in the long view genealogy of our memory, not in just today fighting back. Jay Carruthers said there are three reasons that we focus on classical Africa and bring it forward through memory, the repetition of the birth. So it isn't just going to Kimmy to talk about old kingdom when they create the foundation. Egypt is basically the culmination of thousands of years of African movement from the equator Egypt is the end of the process, so we're going to see the finished process of what Africans have been developing over tens of thousands of years in inner Africa. That's how we know it's African. you are not arguing about that. The Middle Kingdom after invasion is them tapping into that previous memory to restore themselves. We'll talk about that when we get to the Nile Valley. The so-called New Kingdom after another period of invasions is an attempt to reconnect as well through Amos and then through uh uh, uh Jehudimos and then um of course um do 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 and then uh um 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 the third and so forth, Seti the first before that. I mean, but the point is this there are real complicated lessons that we're gonna be talking about in the Nile Valley. What happens when you expand so widely that you now do have some thugs running things? Because Ramsey's ain't that nice in a lot of ways. See, there's the the standard philosophically in terms of ways of knowing and then there's reality. So class is a real issue. We're going to explore issues of class because the class issues in Kemet are still what we're dealing with today and we have to deal with it. We have to be able to listen to that. We're not romanticizing. So all the people, this is not the thing that people like to punch us on. No, we're having a different conversation. Again, Carruthers has three things. He says, we have the memory of African people before invaders. We go to Kemet To look at what was going on in Africa before invasion, before the Greeks, before Manetho. Even talking about old new and middle, old middle and new kingdom is to use a periodization that the Greeks elicit from Manetho, who is an Egyptian priest who's writing to help the Greeks understand, but it's putting that chronology in. The second thing we did, that's what allows us to see the living traditions when we see them. He says this restoring this and its equivalents in other African societies we will still see how we survive, how these things survive. So when people say instruction includes how slaves develop skills, people assume you learn them skills during slavery. And now I see Nicole Hannah-Jones and them, my friend Nicole Hannah-Jones them saying, no, we brought skills with us. Uh, our man, Howard French saying that, they're absolutely right. But here's the real thing as it hits. You think the momentum of memory is real tough when you bring the mandate blacksmiths in or the women agriculturalists of what is now Sierra Leone and Liberia in. You think it's real tough when you bring the architects of Central Africa in. How tough will it be when you go back thousands of years before that and bring the whole continent in beginning with the Nile Valley? You're talking about wash over this thing? Oh, we can make you dance if you want. Drew, Santis, you're giving a talk in a building that we developed the formation for creating walls in a roof. We're going to stand at Sakura at the oldest stone building. Bruh, you in here talking smack against black people in a building. You're surrounded by architecture we literally gave you. In addition to your fingers and toes and your mouth, because we your grandparents. But we'll get to that in another point. The second of the three says the African impact on the origins and developments of Eurasian historiographies and the counter impact of Eurasian historiographies on Africa. This is the challenge. If Africa is the export of the Abrahamic traditions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, is Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and it is, then what distinguishes white Christian nationalism from the ways of knowing that left Africa and that the Romans adopted as Christianity? Well, here's the challenge, and here's where it gets difficult, because one of the sisters on the board, one of the black women said, you know, I'm glad we got taken from Africa, because if they hadn't, we'd be worshiping a tree, okay? Hold on. Hold on, this is gonna be problematic, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it. This is a when Charles T. Washington and says, You got, because they can quote Bush, D. we must acknowledge that notwithstanding the all of slavery, the 10 million Negroes inhabiting this country who themselves or whose ancestors went through the school of American slavery longer and more hopeful condition, materially, and religiously than is true of an equal number of black other portion of the globe. And they say, See, And they say, when you look at the AP course and you look at the Florida standards, they use some of the very similar language on skill development and use for benefit, which is true. Now you got a problem. Why is that a problem? Well, here's the issue. And uh, stay with me, this is going to be difficult. For a lot of people in the Christian worldview, it's about soul salvation, which means individual salvation. I don't care if my mama don't go. I don't care if my daddy don't go. That individual-based negotiation with some notion of the divine for your personal eternal benefit, that is part of the number two, what Carruthers was talking about, the counter impact of Eurasian historiographies on Africa. And that is something that goes greatly unvoiced because it fits well with capitalism. I'm gonna get rich, and if I want you to eat something, I'll give you some money. But I'm gonna get rich first, because I can't help you till I'm rich. I'm going to heaven. You can go to hell. I'm gonna expose you. That's my job. But if you don't do it, you are heathen. Ho! Oh, what the hell just happened? Conversion? With, this is the this is what Dr. Carruthers calls the the the, uh, the metaphysics of alienation. You've alienated yourself. And what we have, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, some of these things that we claim we're rejecting, we also embrace more deeply as a result of this cultural invitation. The third of the three, he says, the rise of Pan-African liberation historiography from David Walker to Sheikh to Job, anticipating the African Renaissance over 50 years ago. What Carruthers is saying in conclusion is that the work we have to do is work we've been trying to do for well over a century. Us going to Kemen. Is following in a tradition of Africans. It extends back to the 19th century. Why are we going? We're going to get a grounding. We're going to be exposed. We're going to literally sit in the bread crumb factory. And having done that, the more we study, the more we can talk with each other, the more we develop, the more we can reclaim the momentum of memory. And then we don't argue over words in a curriculum. We don't argue over uh Uh, whether or not enough black people were included here in a divert. No, we are standing in our space and you know how it's effective. There are two ways we know. We know it's effective because we see the transformational impact in ourselves and we're going to all experience that when we go to the Nile Valley. It never gets old. And the second reason we know, which is a much more diminished reason, but important nonetheless, is that when we start doing that, that's when you see the open enemies of our common humanity lose their minds because we're no longer enslaved. And we have developed using our skills and talents for our personal meaning collective benefit. Yes, was that?
0: Are you still here? Yeah. All right.
1: I know it was long, but yeah, they did remove the woman and gave us a Holy Ghost. That was the Nicaea Council. Where well, you
0: there? Yeah, I am. I am. Okay,
1: it's done. I'm sorry, we went a little long. We.
0: I'm not worried about that. I just want. I just want you guys to have a safe trip. I want everyone who's going to, to be transformed by the... It's, it's like a feedback or It is. Maybe uh-huh.
1: little, uh, no, no, I mute myself, it'll... No, it's probably it's me.
0: I've been having... tech. Oh yeah, that did work. I've been having technical di- difficulties. But uh, before we go, I remember when you had that shirt the first time I saw it. Can you just, again, for those who are uninformed with MetaNature, can you just tell them what that says?
1: Sure, we can see. All right, you know what? We're in Nubia. Let's just see if somebody very quickly can translate this. Let me stand up a little. Let me move this up a little bit to see. All right. Can y'all see that what that is? Somebody translate it right quick. I'm going to scroll the chat. And if they can't do it quickly, these are all uniliterals, right? This is all uniliterals. What's the first one? Now, anybody who's watching this later on YouTube or seeing on other platforms and shout out to Ahamad, I figured y'all in jail broke the Twitter now or X or whatever they call it. People are watching all over. This is very important. Everybody getting exposed. You about this. We about to see something. Let me go here to new chats. Let me scroll. I'm scrolling, trying to scroll. We may not be able to do it quickly. There's probably somebody in here. Okay. Somebody got the first one. K. That's right. That's the unilateral K. Right. This is the you the flowering reed i e e. This is uh, the owl m. Owl is seen also as a figure of wisdom of sorts, but m. Well, there are a lot of other grammatical rules, but uh, k i m. Uh, the other thing is they're not vowels in Medanetria, so This would be a soft vowel like an I. Kim Kim. Then the Egyptian vulture. Which is a soft bow. There you go, Angela, Angela got it. Angela got it. I mean, Shanita got it. Shanita got it. That's right. There she said it. Ah ah. Kimma. This is the, uh, the 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 bread loaf. The cake. Then this you can't really see it closely. I put it up on the. This is the an H almost like a uh an enclosure for it. like but you but they got they, they sewed it in without making you can't see how it traces here almost like a maze uh-oh almost like a maze you can't see the lines here come on then here is the double slash which can also be the double flowering reed depending on what you see so this is e so together it's e m a t e. Kimati. Kimati, they got it. They got it. Lamar got it. on that's my uh Gikuyu name that Hwasi Nelson, uh, a Yoruba priestess, gave me at Kwanzaa in Nashville in December 1987. Uh, the great Kwame Leo Lillard, for many years now an ancestor who convened the Kwanzas in Nashville from the time we were kids, uh, through now then Umar Jate, the great Umar Jate, um, who uh, did it for many years, he and his family. And now they continue. So people talking about Kwanzaa, like, oh, it's like Juneteenth. Well, now, nobody knew about Juneteenth. <laughs> Come on now. Everybody knew about a lot of things that you don't know if you don't know about no governance. But she gave me that name. It was not a name I picked for myself. Um, it is a Kuyu name. So um, Baba Adasojay may know. I know what Duke Winam would know. And Kiswahili. Oh, not Kiswahili. Well, Kiswahili too. But in in uh, uh, in, um, in East Africa, you would know that name means searcher. Provider, so she said, you know, "It was an elder who had been watching me for a long time. Earns provider, that's right, Kenneth.
0: Well, I knew it. So you
1: knew it. That's right. That's okay. right. And well, it's the nature. right nature. Yes, yeah,
0: right. I want to. I want to wish everyone a safe journey. Uh, we're going to, of course, talk in office hours, uh, and then you guys are going to be off. But for people who are traveling there, who may not be going with the group of two hundred, what advice can you give them in terms of what they should be taking with them, or in terms of like how they should be approaching uh, the the journey to Kimmy or you know absolutely. To the
1: kind of- absolutely very quickly because there are people who go in ones and twos um be careful always head on the swivel um the guides there are professional guides meaning they're employed by the by the uh private tour companies but all of them have to register with the government they're un, un, in uneven quality most of the guys don't know much meta nature though they have to go through a kind of formal schooling but it's kind of quick um so you know bring a good book or two so you can do if you go to Egyptian Museum stop there and get you a nice text There are plenty of books around that can help you kind of do a little lightweight studying on your own as you're going um, If you're going to uh, Luxor um, You definitely or Eswan, you want to go by a booty's bookstore our brother a booty who is there uh, when you go to Cairo, there's a Nubian brother who has a bookstore in the Alley there that leads to the place they're going to take you. One of the Coptic churches is very popular on tour. Today. Don't pass by that stall, he has some great books there. You can pick up some things. And then finally, all of the advice that you said before, Prop, you got to stay hydrated. It's going to be well over 100 degrees consistently. We'll make the adjustments. Um, if you don't, if you feel like you're lightheaded or whatever, sit down, get you some water quickly. Uh, in terms of food, you know, Mario has a very sensitive stomach and mine has gotten sensitive over the years, you know people say brush your teeth with bottled water and all that. I would agree if you know, what I mean. um, careful about, you know, drinking local stuff. Um, my stomach was okay when I went there in '96. Probably, we were in that Swan. I went over to Island. I'm sitting in the room with all these Nubian cats. We ran and talking about politics. We were talking about George Bush at the time, which is crazy. They came looking for me and by then I had drunk about half a pot of um and Senyata would get a kick out of this. this they call it karkadeh in uh in Kemet but we call it hibiscus or sorrel, except it was hot. So they, boy, you drinking that tea? Or is it, that water gonna send you to the run? I ain't had no problems with it. But other thing is, if you have stomach problems, and it can happen, because even if you eat the fruit, the fruit got water in it. Get the local, the local medicine. Because, you know, the local stuff that deals with diarrhea and gas, that kind of thing, it's gonna work better on your stomach than, than putting some stuff from the U.S., Have some stuff from the u.s. If if you have to but get the local stuff because it's gonna work better on the local food um Don't you can use your make make sure your bank knows before you leave that you're traveling So they don't put no stop on you because they see a charge somewhere and they have atms all over Like I said head on a swivel, but at the same time you can get money out the ATM So there's no need to try to take a whole bunch of dollar bills or cash money from here there. No, no and yeah, keep your passport on you and safe. Yes,
0: yes, your passport, super important. Dr. Carr, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate I you too. Wait, I cannot wait uh, to see you in person again. And yeah, soon. Yes, and all of the Nubians and, and others, you know, have a wonderful weekend.
1: Yes. Oh, oh, I should mention, I see here, Kim makes a point, be reserved to men. They don't understand boundaries well, it seems. Yeah, remember we are in a Muslim country. So as we tell people, you know, when we go into mosque. They let anybody, but I'm tell you, you know, what'd you say, uh pro Home training. We got home training. We've been in there, particularly with young people. They may have on some shorts because it's hot outside, but they will bring a scarf or something, something tied around or, or a sweater around their waist. And then when they go in, they kind of just lower it or whatever. Because, you know, we're going into a Christian mosque or a Muslim mosque or a Christian yeah. even space. But then, then you walk past the, and I won't name the countries people come from, but you can imagine, who come in damn near naked. Because they ain't even thought about that. Because, again, this idea that I can just be who I am everywhere. Just be mindful of the protocols. Right, right,
0: right. Head coverings, ladies. There uh, you
1: go. There man, you go. No
0: All right, Dr. Carr. See you in office hours on Monday. And everyone else, I'll see uh, tomorrow. Maroons Medicine chest those of you in newbie. Yes. Wow. Yes. All right. Love you. Love you. Yeah.